working in some kind of for way. real we've got to be part of the celebration yes. honeymoon at my place Yay! Yeah. <laughs> um so the that's rolling are we rolling i think we're good to go okay let me get the audio effects in here let's get it all started with a big air horn okay here we go top of the hour happy friday the 13th <laughs> uh, august 13th and here are your top headlines this beautiful friday the 13th uh the biggest story according to twitter we're going to go through the top. Let's try something new today. We just shake, shake things up. You know, we're still in experimental mode, you know, so, uh, several months into this, you know, we're, we're not precious about the format really. So we're always trying new stuff. So let's try. I'm going to go through. There's about 15, 20 um, headlines that Twitter's talking about, but there's a hundred more that they're not. And what we've come to find out is that the more interesting stuff is, you know, the hundred stories that the, the, the Twitter sphere is, isn't obsessed about. And, um, but when I go through the, these top, um, you know, 15 top headlines that people are talking about on Twitter, everyone of course is free to jump in and comment as always. And, uh, anyone in the audience is free to jump in. Uh, just raise your hand as uh, Suzanne and Vinay and Lucia and everybody did. Mauer's the the new kid on stage today. Everybody else has, is a is a is a part of the Tech News Around the World family. We meet twice a day, every day. Click on the title see, to see the schedule, and we've been doing this for many months together. But I was thinking while I go through the top stories, of course, everyone can chime in. I'll pause briefly between each headline and. Um, if folks can find their favorite headline from the past, you know, 24, 48 hours from their part of the world, uh, geographically or professionally, um, that would be nice. You don't, it's not a, not a requirement, but that would, if you can find your favorite, it'd be nice to know what your favorite headline is. It's something that you happen to have, maybe can add a little extra context to it would even be an extra bonus. So, um, the, Anyway, the biggest, in, by the way, that's open to everybody listening in the audience, which is if there's a headline that you've seen that you think is of interest uh, from your, you know, and especially if you have some kind of connection to it from your part of the world, geographically or professionally, do let us know. As, by the way, someone uh, named Mara uh, has her hand up and her bio says she's a global fashion designer and... Yeah. She's got a mix of Spanish and English in her profile, so definitely You're part welcome. of definitely part of our kind of uh, global citizen DNA that we have up here on stage. Welcome, Mara, as a as a first. Wow! Va boom! Whoa, whoa, whoa! Wow. Powerful. <laughs> 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 yes, it's got that that Latino power. What's going on, Mara? Are you a Whoa! Ew! Oh, hi, you guys. I'm so sorry. I did not realize the speaker were open as I joined. And I no was te preocupes. No te preocupes. <laughs> Hello. So nice to join you guys. I'm really pleased. I'm sorry for the noise. I was just going Welcome on stage. Oh, I'm going to go live speaking. Um, thank you so much for having me. Um, you, I you sound you sound Brazilian, Mara. 
I am. I yeah. am. I was born in Brazil and I lived in the UK for about 12 years and as a fashion designer. And I'm back in Brazil and uh, I work with fashion here. So I have my own business. Okay. Today I work more towards sustainability and I do recycling on the Okay. okay. And um, it's great to hear you guys. Always big, great news. And I love it. There we go. So um, do us a favor and, and let us, uh, I'll come back to you and everybody on stage. I would love to hear your favorite headlines, uh, maybe a fashion tech or a Brazil tech or anything like that. So I've got the top headlines this very moment. Uh, let's run through them real fast. Um, that's the biggest story at the moment is NVIDIA says part of its keynote that it did with its CEO back in April was led by a virtual replica of its CEO, Jensen Huang, created by scanning Huang and then training an AI to mimic his gestures, including, and it, in, it showed him in front of its, I, I, you just have to see this to believe this. The funny thing is, is this happened back in April. It was so convincing that nobody noticed it. Like really nobody. And, and when you watch it, you, you won't be able to tell either. <laughs> It's um, he's wearing a leather jacket, glasses, his hair. All of it is not real. It's not human. It's a it's a computer generated twin of him. And they themselves have a tool. And it's a, that, that it's absolutely genius marketing for their tool that they have that I saw myself yesterday where you can design humans um to do this, this kind of um, virtual replicas, uh, you can make, you can design any any kind of avatar, or you can try and design one that looks like yourself. You know, if you spent a little time, the one that I saw, it's it's a it's a little cute app. It looks like Photoshop, but on the right hand side, there's uh, several sliders that go left and right, and the default person in the example that I saw was Elon Musk, and maybe somebody could find this on YouTube or something. And then the sliders, like the top slider in the far upper right corner said male, female. And when you slide it, Elon gets more masculine or more feminine. And if you slide it more feminine, it becomes, you know, more and more and more and more and more, you know, feminine looking. Uh, and, and it, you know, he becomes, it, it's a, a very, very, very woman, woman looking. And then the next slider was age, like young and old. And then if you had left it on you know, female or women, and then you go young and old, you can make a very, very young, you know, like everything from about, I would say, 13 to 90 on the young and old. And then you have um, kind of body mass index. And you could make this if you if you picked, you know, woman and then old, then you could make that old woman either very heavy or very thin and etc. And and then you could you had a kind of darkness of skin tones and you could go from everything from very very light to very very dark and you could you know there was a few others as well kind of face facial shape of oval or square and you know um truly wild and you could really design anybody with these just by moving these sliders um really really mind-blowing and and the and as they showed you when you it's not just an image it's an actual usable avatar and like they did, and you uh, hopefully somebody can pull up the video of the uh, NVIDIA's CEO uh, during their April keynote. 
and uh, DM it to me and, uh, and I'll tweet it out because you cannot tell. And it's just a guy standing in a kitchen in, within a leather jacket with his gray hair and all of it, including the leather jacket, is fake. And you can't tell that that's a computer-generated leather jacket. It looks real as all get out. It's unbelievable. So um, brilliant, brilliant marketing that nobody noticed it um, during their keynote. Anyway, so that's the top story. And it's kind of concerning people. <laughs> people are like now uh, jumping all over this. Like, how the holy shit. The, it was a deep fake and nobody knew it. So uh, the next big story is Disney Plus, which is their streaming platform. So you can subscribe to get all that amazing Disney content streamed for the very low price. I don't know. what Are they charging $100 a month now or something? That ain't cheap. Whatever it is. I think it's like DMU. 30 bucks a month. You found the video? Yeah. S fantastic. So um, two you and Faraz both did simultaneously. Tyler, I, I, I gave you the documentary, and I think uh, uh, Cheryl might have given you the video, but I gave you yeah. the documentary on the making yeah. of it. I've got the video right here in front of me, and I'm looking at I'm forwarding 30 minutes into it. So I'm going to click share. I'm going to go ahead and advance it to 30 minutes copy. And I'm now tweeting it to the tech news Twitter account, which is kind of like our uh, second screen um, thing that we do here. Uh, uh, NVIDIA keynote with a virtual CEO. There we go. Here we go. I just tweeted that out. So you can click on that and you'll see this um, incredibly convincing but it looks like a human. Tell me that doesn't look like a human. Tell me that jacket doesn't look like a real leather jacket. It looks like an alligator leather jacket, to be specific. And Jesus, his hands, his hair is wild. Anyway, so... Um, I'm watching it on my other phone. There's, 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 you, can, you can't tell the difference. No, I know. That's what, that's my, that's what I'm saying. This thing is human. Yeah, he looks human. I mean, <laughs> so, I mean, that's why nobody caught it back in April. So... The next big story is that Disney Plus has done their um, quarter earnings report where they say that they now have 116 million subscribers. By the way, they are not very old. That is really fast to get 116 million subscribers paying, I think it's 20 something dollars a month, right? That's a whole lot of cash coming in for Disney's content, which they had anyways, like now they're monetizing the content that they, this is not like they had to pay a lot of new money to build this. They just had to build the platform to get it into your house, right? So that's just an incredible amount of monthly revenue pouring into Disney, my goodness. So they have 116 million subscribers, which is more than what the market expected. So now the stock is going up today. Uh, ESPN has what they call ESPN Plus. So you can subscribe to ESPN's content. And they uh, rose 75% over the past year. Um, they're up to 14.9 million, which is one-tenth of Disney, just to give you context, again, for how much how many people signed up for Disney. Hulu grew 21%. Amazing that they're still growing, but there's a whole lot of people wanting streaming content. They've, they've consumed everything Netflix has to offer, and they need a second uh, streaming platform to get extra content, I guess. They're up to 42.8 million. And the question is, how much longer will these platforms continue to grow at all? Netflix is now aiming more internationally. It's kind of getting saturated 
in the U.S. market. And, and Netflix as well is getting into video games because they need to add more, more to their platform and kind of more arms and more, um, more offerings to their platform. And it's interesting to see how that's happening. David, a couple other you... dynamics there. Yeah, go. I can hold. I'm sorry. No, no, do it. Go? Yeah. Yeah. So, so back in the 90s, sorry for all those back in the 90s openings, the content is king kind of whole concept. Really, Disney was one of those content kings that everybody talked about. Hey, it's all about the content. And so them popping this, you know, now is a, is a manifestation of not only their historic legacy of content but they went off and bought like you said espn but marvel and they've it's one of those things now where disney disney can do whatever they want but what you what was left out of the math you just said was comcast and the cable companies Mm -hmm. and the 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 drop in cable subscriptions now that they've the content companies have you know unleashed these uh these side channels about going just directly to their content so, I mean, it, it, what's really fascinating, I think, is just the, the rise of Netflix content at this, at this chapter that we're kind of starting. Because Netflix content is, it's awesome. I mean, a lot of it's really great. So, I don't know, I thought that I wanted to just yeah. provide some historical yeah, yeah. context. Thanks. Yeah, and Tyler, and when you were saying you had it, you posed a question, like, how much more can it grow? You know, um, let me share a little story. Uh, I'm here in India right now, right? It's. I think it's. It's the tip of the iceberg. Still, the U.S. is only five percent of the global population. I had a pivotal moment recently that just was mind-boggling. Um, I'm in India and Delhi, and I'm walking down the street and I see a street vendor. Um, he's selling coconuts. He's got a machete in his hand and it's just a cart and he's selling coconuts. And, they, and, and a passenger pulls up. A car pulls up and wants to buy a coconut. And they reach into their pocket and pull out cash. The street vendor. Pulls up, has his phone. He's like, what, what do you mean cash? I don't want cash. I want, you have Paytm or Google Wallet? Mm-hmm. And the guy's like, no. He's like, what's wrong with you? Why don't you have this? And I'm like, wow. When the, when, when the street vendors in India ha- are demanding online payment, they all got phones. Uh, it's, it's a totally different ballgame. Once all these uh, subscription apps start making their way into the uh, lower and middle income countries and these lower and middle income countries, their wages are rising because they're all now online. 40 million of them just came online, just Southeast Asia. I mean, mm-hmm. it is, it's going to be an amazing world, I think. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, so can I just add, I mean, Go so Jamar, I'm in Bangalore and we have just Paytm, right? The one you mentioned has almost 400 million users. That's more than the population of the U.S., just Paytm in India. And uh, Southeast Asia may have added 40 million, but India alone added 90 million during the pandemic. Uh, to the yeah, online digital world. And they're about to IPO. I mean, I think Paytm is going to be an amazing uh, company to, to, to invest in. I'm not, I don't work for them, I'm not pitching them, but they're, they're, they're going uh, IPO pretty soon. Yes. Yeah, we, we've covered that headline and the development of Paytm since uh, they first were hinting about possibly IPOing. They're going back about a month. And they got tremendous uh, investors as well. So the, the cover the NVIDIA, I, tweet, I shared the NVIDIA video of their virtual CEO keynote, and that, that, that's out now, Disney Plus and the streaming platforms. And then the next biggest story, which is the third biggest story at the moment, is from the Wall Street Journal that Craig Federighi, who's uh, a very senior team member at Apple, 
and anyone who watches the Apple uh, keynotes knows who Craig is. He's the the kind of I call him Boy Wonder. Yeah, <laughs> he's got this um, you know big uh, hair. You know, he's kind of known for his hair, actually. <laughs> funny enough, um, but he's responsible for basically all software at Apple, essentially. And Craig says uh, they are introducing two similar features, iMessage protections for children and CSAM scanning of iCloud photos at the same time cause confusion. Ah, okay. (laughs) Boy, this this particular issue of this uh, child abuse image scanning is just continues to... um, have uh, we this is like the eighth headline in the past you know eight days related to this so the wall street journal saying that craig federides says introducing two similar features number one i message protections for children and number two the um scanning of icloud photos for child abuse imagery at the same time has caused a lot of confusion fair enough yeah I, per, you you might not be wrong in saying that um, but I don't think it matters. I think you could have just done the scanning of the images and that's all anyone's really paying attention to. People aren't really commenting on the iMessage protections for children all that much. Uh, and all the criticism that you're getting there at in Apple land, by the way, there was a headline eight hours ago when we met here previously, uh, cause for the real diehard geek, news geeks in the room, we meet twice a day, every day. And when we met previously, um, the headline was that um, Reuters was claiming they had an exclusive sources that somebody inside Apple had revealed that 8,000, no, what was 880 messages on, on Slack. Apparently, well, to me, the, the the headline was something around the lines that um, um, in there was internal debate now on Slack inside of Apple's uh, team slack channel uh about you know the child abuse image scanning and whether or not they should do it and uh, that there was 880 slack comments going back and forth over this issue and what was surprising was a that that was leaked out to the press because normally apple's quite renowned for not leaking stuff from inside the company and that's really uncharacteristic for apple team members to do that and uh, I think it speaks to, I think Apple's having a little bit of problem with these type of leaks because of remote working and people working from home for the past year and not being at the campus. Like if you're on the campus uh, every day, mm, you're certainly not going to leak that from within the campus because you will be found out in about a minute flat. But if you're at home on your own system and they don't have necessarily all of the kind of security tools on your home system, maybe people feel a little more confident to be able to leak. Well, a lot of employers are doing uh, uh, keystroke yeah. uh, watching. Yes. In fact, Amazon, that. that was a headline 24 hours ago. Amazon just added keyboard uh, stroke detection and mouse movement detection to prevent precisely this, precisely to stop their own team members who are working remotely from leaking stuff because then they would know who leaked it because that they you can be, huh, David. They can't, they can't stop it. They just get another laptop and you can start to message somebody on New York Times. It's one of those things that you can't actually stop. It doesn't it's matter. You, you know, they can identify you from your keyboard strokes. Is All they have to do is put a tiny little uh, app into, uh, you know, when you log into their platform, that platform downloads code. 
on it's an app on your device that 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 app that you're running um, is tracking your keyboard strokes your keyboard strokes identify you and if you they know who you are on any device basically that logs into the their system you're right uh, you could you could get a, a phone that they don't know about that that's all i'm saying yeah yeah, yeah. if you did and, it and a contact like, center contact center workers are going to have their themselves monitored by ai cameras so we, basically we have that, they know when that, you're away from your we have your station. That, that is also a headline in the past 48 hours that um oh. what this huge remote call center uh company that has 30,000, well, no, they said they had 80,000 employees. Teleperformance, yeah. Teleperformance has some 80,000 um, workers around the world doing, you know, help, and some of them work for Apple. And they and they have team members in Colombia working from home. And those Colombian people working from home are now going to have to have AI-powered cameras in their own homes, you know, with the camera and the microphones on. And they were questioning, you know, how do we feel about this? And they're com- contemplating unionizing to prevent it. The, the company's telling them, well, if you don't, uh, you know, agree to sign the new contract and put the camera in your home, we can't put you on the Apple support team. We can put you on other clients that we work with, but not Apple. And then when Apple's asked for comment, Apple says, hmm, we have no idea what they're doing over there down there in Columbia. That's got nothing to do with us. We just hired this company, this global company to help us, you know, get more team members. We, whatever they do with their employees is their business which is an age-old kind of tactic of uh, separation david the the, the yeah the nature of the, the context of this leak though yeah. is um is different from hey we've got the next generation you know tech right kind of leak so that this is a moral you Correct. know a moral question that as we've seen with lots of the not just the work from home but also the hey, do something about climate uh, employee, um, you know, right? Topics. Yeah, so, yeah. Employee yeah. activism, I yes. think, is what, there you go. Thank what, you. what it's really and, amounting and, to. And this is another example of employee activism at Apple that is kind of uncharacteristic. Uncharacteristic, <laughs> yeah, because this is the third instance in a month where, or two, um, say six weeks, where first you had an Antonio who they hired who was a, you know, the ad guru at Facebook and wrote that book, Chaos Monkeys. And he w- used to come into Clubhouse quite often as, as part of um, Eric's rooms and uh, the Big Ideas Club. And um, and then he was, Apple had brought him in because Apple wants to build up their ad network. And some employees, team members at Apple put together a signature collection campaign to say they didn't want to welcome him. And then as he had sold his home, and relocated and showed up for work. They said, "Oh, sorry, uh, <laughs> we're not going to be employing you after all." And um, we have to assume he's in a lawsuit, and we have to assume he's hopefully will get some kind of um, remuneration as a result of that. Um, in any case, the that was first, and then the Apple employees, when they were told they had to come back to the office September first ish, I believe Tim Cook sent out that email to uh, everybody internally. And um, Sid, who works at Apple, who joins us here nearly every day, confirmed that he got that email. And there was a signature collection to, you know, uh, say, no, we, we don't want to come back to the office or we don't like the idea of being forced back to the office. Anyways, three days a week is what Tim Cook was suggesting. And they said, no, <laughs> we, we don't want to do that either. And now we've got this issue where they're leaking the fact that there's a bit of a brouhaha over um this child abuse image scanning 
on iCloud and on on the devices. But to to Craig's point, I don't know that it matters much that that the the two similar features of you know iMessage protections for children and the and the child abuse image of scanning of iCloud. Yeah, that might have caused a little confusion, but it, it wouldn't have really changed much had you staggered those um, those announcements. Tyler, yes. why can't Apple CEOs just fire these employees? They can. Like, yeah, so yeah. why aren't they? Why don't they? Yeah. It, yeah. Mm, I, maybe because they're worried of... Uh, optics. Op, yeah, a bit of optics. Maybe it's it's not something they've had to consider before. And it's and the, the employees are, I think, smart enough to do it as a group of... Apparently, how, how, there was quite a lot of people that signed the uh, Apple petition. You know, they're the they're the really well behaved kids that are suddenly acting up now. Well, you but know I mean, because because what happened is they said, you know, you can't use our servers to talk about, uh, you know, this or that. And that's why they are talking about it on Slack now. You but know, it seems like like spoiled kids. though. yeah, but here's my point is they're smart enough to do signature collections. So because they know independently if, you know, they go to. Uh, some boss and say, you know, hey, I, I don't like this and, you know, I'm going to leave if you don't change it. If it's one person, then good, you're done. Bye bye. And so that's why that's why they do the signature collection is to have uh, to protect their own um, likelihood of being let go as a result of standing firm on this issue. If you, have a you don't see them standing up to like the, all the issues that are happening in the third world, right? With Apple products and stuff. No, you do, you, you do in some yeah, companies. I mean, these um, these are highly okay. sought after employees. Google yes. would love to poach them or, or yes. Microsoft or others. So. Yes. And, and let's, not, you, let's not make any assumptions either, Hamid. There, there are lots of really rich conversations yeah. in those places. Yeah. They're just too, they're too busy to do things sometimes too. No, no, no. But, but to be but fair, it's, it, it's been yeah. revealed, for example, like the... Uh, um, Amazon um, was doing technology related to facial recognition and a bunch of team members says, no, I'm not working on this no more. And you, and you, you're doing work for the government and the NSA at the border. And we're going to, here's, you know, a thousand of us are agreeing that we're going to leave unless you cancel that partnership or that uh, agreement with, you know, the, the border patrol, you know, and uh, using facial recognition at the, you know, border down in Mexico and whatever you, you, they do, they you, you they are starting to get into these issues. And by the way, when India was telling Twitter to take down content, Twitter had internally team members saying, "Don't do." It was Facebook. Facebook had an internal uh, campaign where they were telling Facebook, "Don't bend to India asking to remove you know these hashtags." You know, it's, they have freedom of speech in India. This is not illegal content that the government's asking us to you know, uh, take down. So don't do it. And that puts the, the leadership at Facebook in a very tight spot when you, you know, you know, it's, it's not known how many people ended up resigning out of that. Um, but yeah, there, there are people, you know, politicizing a lot of this. And this speaks to the headline that we got into. There was two headlines that we got into, I don't know, three months ago, four months ago, which was prior to the Coinbase IPO. The Coinbase's, you know, CEO, Brian Armstrong, made a, a this was during Black Lives Matter, actually, where he says, listen, no political issues at work, period. We, we have a mission here at Coinbase to, you know, bring 
crypto to the world. That is our mission, our singular, very focused mission. There are several other missions that you can, you know, be attached to on the planet. And if you want to attach yourselves to those missions on your own time after work, God bless you. If you want to do it during your work time, you need to go find another company where that's their mission, because that's not our mission. Our mission on our company time that our investors are paying us to focus on is the mission of you know bringing crypto to the world. And so if, if this isn't a good fit for you, here's a severance package. It's been nice knowing you. So to your point, Heyman, there is a company doing that where they saw they realized that Americans are getting very um, bifurcated, balkanized on their political views. And there's a whole lot of discussion and separation and, and a lot of hot button issues. And they didn't want to create an environment that welcomed that. They want to stay focused because they have an IPO. They had an IPO to focus on. And so they said, hey, if you want to have those conversations, great. There's so many companies you can go work at that are uh, very welcome to you know in, in, engage those conversations during work. And you're, it, we could see, I mean, when Coinbase did that, oh boy, did the press have a heyday with that. They're like, oh, you're silencing their employees. <laughs> you know, they, the, you know, the press went really strong on them for that. And then a month later, uh, DHH at um, Basecamp with 37 Signals did the same thing where they said, hey, no more political discussions at work. And it almost seemed like that the 37 Signal team did this intentionally for the PR value, as strange as that sounds, because nobody cares what's happening at 37 Signals or Basecamp. Nobody gives a hoot what's happened. No, why does the press need to know? And who leaked that? Nobody. It was like the, the leaders of the company themselves stood up on a chair and said, hey, we're doing the same thing Coinbase is doing. Well, nobody asked you if you're doing that. In Coinbase's case, it was revealed you know, some employee who wasn't happy about the fact that Coinbase was offering severance packages to team members who didn't who who felt the need to be bring up political issues at work or and debate them. Um, you know, b- raised it to the press's attention. In the case of Thirty Seven Signals Coinbase, where they have this email alternative called Hey, and it seemed like they were intentionally trying to ride uh, the the PR wave of getting attention uh, around this political conversations at work. And but nobody really cared ultimately. Anyway, so but they did a similar thing, and it'll be interesting to see if, um, if that how the bigger tech companies deal with this. The thing they can't do is risk pissing off thousands of team members simultaneously, because that gets you know that can hurt their bottom lines very substantially. Just yeah, go ahead. One question, though, David and uh, Tyler. Just you know what the uh, Shopify CEO, yeah, right? Sure. You know how he said that let's not be family. This is not a family. This is a team, right? Yeah. This is a workplace. Yeah. Why is it a problem with Apple leadership then? In what way? In the sense that they may be creating this family environment that is not conducive to good business practices. I don't think no. I don't think Apple no? folks okay. think of themselves in that context. Okay. The different company cultures are part of just, it's a strategic weapon, right? In terms of in the, in the marketplace for, for talent. So there's mm-hmm. going to be different strategies, quite frankly. So that's, that's what these examples are. Okay. So the next biggest headline at this moment is from the New York Times from Kevin Roos, who's uh, one of the geeks at the New York Times who covers tech. And he's wrote a piece on a look at, community NFT projects like Pudgy Penguins 
which have become a new kind of financial and social status symbol on the internet. There's some truth to that, although um, not not really, uh, because, for example, there, we have somebody named Ida who joins us in the audience normally. In, oh, hey, Jay, sorry, I didn't see you had your hand up there. And Ida's in the audience now. And Ida has a CryptoPunk as uh, their um, icon, uh, avatar. And we don't know if Ida actually is the owner of that NFT of that CryptoPunk. And by the way, would, unless Ida acquired that um, when they were originally released, you know, where, where it could have been acquired for quite quite reasonable amount of money there was a crypto punk there's i think there's about 10,000 crypto punks and most recently there was one traded yesterday for 150 million dollars and if you look at Ida in the audience Ida Luang that's a crypto punk and they all look like that although there's variations of them some have glasses some don't some have long hair some have short hair but they all look very 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 similar some have are more masculine some are more feminine some look like um aliens some look like apes and whatever and they are trading for millions and millions of dollars now some some people might correctly point out that something seems a little peculiar about buying these things for 150 million dollars you can buy a goddamn picasso for 150 million dollars which is a very real oil painting um but, but the point is that we don't know if Ida paid for that or not she can take that Im- somebody else might own that image we could all change our avatar to that image and then what what is the owner of that image really paying for except the ability to say i actually i have a, a document an nft contract that shows that i'm actually the owner of this image but they will have no abilities to stop you from using it yourself or anybody for that matter but they don't they don't have copyright right it's not even copyright well they well they they nor they don't have an army of lawyers to stop you from using it even if they did so um, well, although if you're buying them for 150 million, maybe you do have enough money to spend on lawyers to protect people from using it. I don't. I don't think it is. I don't know. But is it copyrighted? I don't think so. I mean, even Tyler? if you have... Tyler. Yes. Yes, Amy. Mm, there's um, there's an artist in the audience that could help you with CryptoPunk. Her name's Ida Luang. Uh huh. And she she had a CryptoPunk made for her. She could share a little bit more about what was created. But to the point of a copyright with NFT and the CryptoPunks, obviously that's digital art and you're paying for the provenance, which is basically that it's immutable on the blockchain. And there's only one of it. There's one of one. So when you start to see the scarcity that shows up, the CryptoPunks have been around a while, since 2015. So this project's been, been absolutely ongoing. Crypto Kitties was the other one, and also the Moon Cats was another one. So there have been a number of OG now, projects. Now pudgy penguins and stoner cats, yeah, but, and it's and getting really, really thing. annoyingly derivative. Honestly, like it's yeah, a, it's... you know what? It, of course, and you see, it's annoying. I mean, for some it may be annoying, but for others, it's a unique expression of the no, artist no, no. to be able to do I, something. I'm, I'm all, them. I'm all for people creating new stuff, but when you go from pudgy penguins to stoner cats and uh, dorky donkeys and you know fuddy penguins and yeah, yeah. just like give me I a break already saying. yeah i mean it becomes critical <laughs> thinking it's like it's almost like where's the originality of right being done yeah you're and just, I get you're just doing it for the money that you know i'm i'm hardly yeah. inspired by that's, your you know you're changing the art yeah. world um yeah. tyler i think ida wants to speak ida yeah hi ida 
Hi, yeah, hi, Cheryl. Hi, Tyler. Yeah. Hey, Ida. Hi, uh, Tyler has been. Hi, everyone. Tyler has been using me as an example and yes. um, starting to feel embarrassed. So I feel <laughs> welcome, okay, Ida. Speak up. Hello. No, no, you shouldn't. Um, you should so... not in any way feel embarrassed about of anything. Of course, Ida. Because I, I don't think Strictly is considered a cyberpunk. So one of my friends who is in, in the space uh, kind of created it for me. Uh-huh. I don't know what software she used, but it's like very basic. And I tried to ask her to mint it, and she said it won't be worth anything. So yeah, it's called MS Paint. Yes. No, no. It's so a, technically, I, I love it. Oh. because The fact that it, it, clear, it clearly could so, pass for a crypto punk. So I've been wondering for a long time. Maybe I may can, can um, answer my question. I mean, I can... It's kind of like analogy, like I feel like I'm drinking a bubbly, but I'm not drinking a champagne because it's not like, you know, producing champagne. Uh-huh. Kind of so is it still I love considered that. a crypto pump? Oh, this is, is so good. Thank you for raising this issue. Know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's either it's a very it's just validated so many things. Yeah. Ida, it's a very interesting dynamic because it's such a cool. No, it's it's a cool... you're worth nothing, Ida, because it's not an official crypto <laughs> pump. Your six-year-old daughter made it. It's worth nothing, Ida. Your six-year-old daughter's creation is worth nothing because it's not a real crypto punk. Yeah, I have in my mind if someone hear this and go and mint it in the next minute, and then can they come and sue you me and say you've been Ida. using <laughs> you've been using my like now someone else has minted it? Can that person kind of sue me and say you're using something that I've copyright? Yeah, well, that's the other. There's now artists who have died and how people are minting their artworks uh and you know it's a it's a whole funny game i, I think ultimately... we, we may have actually increased your value of that particular picture just by talking about it today okay <laughs> and, uh, literally, okay proof. wait a second jason how much scarier could your profile picture be i just need to say that that's that, really... that's great that just really scares me. And the Jason follows me, makes me a And it's nervous. Friday the 13th, dude. You're a freak. I know, Jason, you're scaring everyone on stage By the way, Kieran, I just tried to invite that. you on stage, Kieran, but it's not working, so you might have to jump out and back in. Though, Amy, I'm not sure how long an erection lasts, though, anymore. <laughs> hi, hi, Tyler. Oh, Hello, why is Crow? Yes, Vice Crew. So you have 10,000 uh, crypto punks. They are in a smart yes. contract. Yes. And there is a huge demand for, for crypto punks. That's why the price is going up. And even Christie's is making auctions. And the latest yes. one is uh, super expensive. Yeah, there can be a um, rotation of Ethereum. But we, we don't know it. We, we can't prove it, you know. Right. But still... Um, there are also bots which are bringing out offers. So you have a price floor on those crypto punks. But essentially, the, it's an image uploaded in in. On we know blockchain. what they are. No, no, we're we not confused it, about this. Wisecrow, you wait, can wait. you can save us the uh, kindergarten wait, talk wait, about wait. what a crypto punk is. It's, we know what it's they are. It's not kindergarten talk. The, while minting, <laughs> it's 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 attached to one token in the yes, smart we contract. We got it. Thank so, you. And that, Thank you. We got all that. We know all of the fundamentals of NFTs. That's not the issue. Dr. Francine Hardaway, just inviting you up there. Um, welcome back. It, so the Pudgy Penguins, uh, the New York Times story is about how um, we're starting to see these kind of NFT things as potential status symbols. Although, are they really? Because you don't know if the person using it is the owner of it or not unless they put a link in their bio that says, oh, here's my, 
Ethereum con my NFT contract, I actually am the owner of it. So the icon itself is not a status symbol at all. Anyone can use it. It's the link exactly. in your bio, if you were uh, weird enough to put it there, to show that I'm the owner of this uh, image, so to speak. Yes. Tyler, Someone, a gentleman just backed down, um, BC'd me and basically said to just give you a heads up yes. and share this information that login with Ethereum, once it goes mainstream, only the one NFT that's linked with the original contract will get that blue verification ticker that you see on OpenSea that's similar like Twitter and stuff. And then the only original one will be verified. Yeah. Yeah, but who cares? Thanks to Lucas. For people, for people outside the blockchain, they don't care. Well, it's not only that. It's that the image, the quote-unquote crypto punk image uh, that they acquired, you can have the, it's just, it's a file that anyone can duplicate perfectly, uh, an actual identical duplication which means the the image itself is actually worthless it's the claim of ownership of the con smart contract that shows that you're the quote-unquote owner of that file is what no, is valuable also based in provenance yeah. tyler which means that crypto punk cannot have the same block number on the right. ethereum blockchain it will be immutable because it will that crypto right. punk will always be that one number right and that block cannot be changed so right. in essence if someone tries to make a copy of it well they got to look at the metadata and they'll see that it's not it's a counterfeit and that's actually what's the provenance to louis vuitton when it comes to their bags and hermes bags that can't be counterfeited once it's immutable into the blockchain you can't force falsify it and it's the same thing with the crypto one. Everyone and their mother could make a copy of a crypto punk, but to the end of the day, the only way they're going to check it is by going into the metadata and being able to check the file. Right. And that's when they're going to see the co the chain number is not the same as the original. Yes. So, uh, Tyler, so Tyler, what, what, can, what can be done is when a fork of Ethereum is is let's say there there's a fork of ethereum and then on that fork of ethereum the whole smart contract of the crypto punks can be copied and then they can be renamed to for example uh, p crypto punk with a with a letter in front of it uh, like you have uh, btc on ethereum it's wbtc and then um yeah, you have have a copy of the whole smart contract and you can sell them for lower prices. This is going to happen on the pulsechain.com in six weeks. All Ethereum wallets will be copied to the smart to the pulse chain with including all NFT smart contracts. So you, you have the opportunity to buy a cheaper CryptoPunk. I have a question for Wisecrow and I may. So there are more than one blockchain that like for example, Cardano can you can also mean an MF and FTs there. So if two persons simultaneously mint it in two different platforms, then who can argue which one is more original than the other one? Well, Ida, there there isn't an argument of which is original. They would be originals to the blockchain that they're on. So for example, if you do it on Cardano or Polkadot or Ethereum. Each one of those mints. But the point is, Amy, how, how long does it take to Could create I a new blockchain? Can I finish my statement before I get interrupted, please? No, no, sorry. I just want to say that how long does it take to get a, you know, create a blockchain? Uh, that's the point. Right? Everyone's going to create a blockchain in 10 minutes. But that isn't the question that Ida's asking. She's asking about which is the one that would be more valuable as original if there's two artists minting on two different blockchains. Which one would be the one that would be original? They would both be original 
specifically to the blockchain that they're on and they would have the provenance on that blockchain for what they're minting on that space which is why artists would choose and tyler you've brought this up too as a strategy some artists will want to mint on multiple blockchains because some as we've heard in clubhouse some are a bit shady like foundation that holds back a lot of money and don't maybe don't give the artist the right to move it to another blockchain blah 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 so artists still have to take care of their art and put it on a few blockchains and that's basically minting their artwork so that people have the accessibility to see it and of course there are different fees associated with minting on different blockchains so depending on the budget of the artist and the artist collectors and curators they may figure out where they want to do it I think Amy, so where, where I'm struggling best. to understand there, Amy, is this. So let's say uh, if I think of NFT as an ICO, so it doesn't stop but me they're raising... Not, they're, in no, no. the art world, they're not ICOs. The no, no, I'm just, just, just... Guys, guys, let's debate this in the crypto side room. Let's move to the next headlines. Kieran, come on, guys. No, no, absolutely. No, you're right. You're right. No, I think we are sidetracking. Sorry. Yep. Okay. So um, I'm tweeting out a Fortune article that Vinay sent in about copyright violations could crash the NFT party for those who want to do that on their own time. And the, um, so the, I, I, I'm, I'm loving Ida or Ida's uh, uh, avatar more than ever now. <laughs> that is a, friend, a friend made it in Microsoft it. Paint. Yeah, I, I love it. Like the chin's not symmetric, right? So there's like a little bit of shading on that side. It like looks 3D. You gotta go it's fantastic. You gotta go <laughs> so the next headline is, in an internal memo, Amazon drops guidelines that claimed ownership rights to video games made by staff after work hours following criticism from developers, and especially in the gaming community, uh, which is very strong in Stockholm, by the way. And so there's this issue that game developers who work at game studios um, are real game geeks. If you're working at a game company, developing video games all day long, you probably are doing some video game stuff at night at home as well, right? Makes sense. The question is, the stuff you do at home at night on your own computer inside your own home it, who whose intellectual property is that? Is it yours or is it the company you work for? And so um, Amazon was trying to um, have these guidelines that claimed ownership rights to video games made by staff after work hours. That's kind of hard to pull off in a court because, uh, you know, Although I can understand why they would try and do that. Like they kind of own you as an artist wherever you happen to be when you have that idea, whether you were on work hours or not. The problem is the law, you know, really wants to kind of keep those two things separate. What you do at work and what you do outside of work. Although traditionally, and, and people who work at tech companies know this or in intellectual property kind of studios understand, it's generally understood what you do on work time uh, or on work premises or on even on work property, meaning if you have a work issued laptop and you used that laptop that you was issued to you by your company at home after work, well, if you're using their resources, that is their intellectual property. So if you really want to stay clean in what is you know your creations and what is the company's, do it on your own devices, on your own time, at your own locations um, and be very clear about that otherwise you could be potentially uh, screwing yourself out of you know your own um, intellectual property and uh, you know handing it over to the company 
and they could have a claim to it if you use their devices or certainly if you did it on their property and almost absolutely if you did it during your working hours as your, you know, during company hours. So uh, it sounds like those clauses at uh, MIT and those like schools like that, where the students, whatever they, you know, come up with any of their ideas that it's owned by MIT and not the students. That's what it sounds like. Yeah. So a memo from the game studio, Amazon game studios chief suggests rules were too broad. Sounds like it. That's why the gaming community is calling you out. Company previously claimed rights to games made outside of work. Yeah, and the gaming industry, of which there's thousands of game studios and hundreds of thousands of people who work at these game studios around the world, want to kind of set the tone that, you know, hey, you're be- Amazon, you're being bad guys in our ecosystem by doing this because it gives other game studios the idea that they can do it too. And the game, you know, the gamer creators as a community around the planet are like, you know, F these bad guys like Amazon who think they can do this. You know, we as a community need to stand up and call them out for their bad behavior. And that's what's happening. And now they're walking it down. And now you've got a a kind of understood um, um, cultural norm or rule of what's acceptable and not acceptable. And the best game creators aren't going to go work at companies that do that. A, just to give you another example, in in startup land, for lack of a better word, of, between startups and investors, there's it's now understood that startups should not ever pay to pitch investors to pitch them. You should not ever pay money to pitch investors. As a startup, you should never pay to pitch an angel investor or a VC ever, 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 ever. And good angels and VCs wouldn't be would never, ever, ever let you pay to pitch them. And yes, I know what Koretsu Forum is, and they're all a bunch of fucking shysters. And they're, it's, that is a completely bullshit, really effed up, screwed up thing that they're doing. Thanks, Tyler. By trying you, to Tyler. charge a lot of money. startups to pitch. Holy yeah. shit. Run away from that like the goddamn devil. That thank is you, some Tyler. really... I literally, I literally was... You know, that's on our roadmap next. So thank you. Don't ever fall for that bullshit. Holy shit. And let me just say, when uh, when it was when the, when that was when that issue came up back in what year? 2007, um, when Credit Forum got started. And there was other by the way, it's not just Credit Forum. There were conferences that had part of their business model to if you wanted to pitch at their conference where they have a thousand or two thousand people in the audience oh you're a startup and you want to be on you want five minutes on stage to pitch your startup at this conference sure you can do that for five thousand dollars and so you're again two you're, emails today yeah. two emails today exactly that time. yeah you're pitching you're paying to pitch at this conference again never ever 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 and they're claiming the conference organizers saying oh but we've got a lot of great investors in the audience who, by the way, we we invited them in for free, you know, or whatever. And now we can charge startups to pitch at this event. And we can say, guess who's in the audience? And th- these people that you want to pitch are going to be in the audience. So why don't you go ahead and pay us, you know, one, two, three, four, five thousand dollars. So Jason Calacanis, who invited me into Clubhouse, look at the bottom of my bio. He's at Jason on Twitter and at Jason on Instagram. And, and myself, uh, together with TechCrunch, got together to create the conference. And we invited all the best investors on the planet, the best assembly of investors that has ever been done before or since. In 2008, we did it at the Palace Hotel on New Montgomery Street 
in the middle of San Francisco, right off the market, and put together all the best investors, tech investors on the planet in one room on one day. And then we put 40 startups on stage that day. And it turns out that those 40 startups we put on stage to pitch, we made it a point and we brought all the best tech journalists that were covering tech in America and even internationally for free to come. And the investors had to pay to come and the startups didn't pay a penny. And the whole point of that event to the message to the press was none of these startups ever paid a penny to pitch to the world's best investors in this room. And these investors are all coming together into this room to send a message to those other fucked up conferences and those bullshit scammers, the Koretsu Forum. Sorry, Dr. Francine. Huh? I said I remember this. I know you do. You're an OG. Yeah, get closer to the mic, Francine. I, I know you remember this because for, for those who don't know, Francine is a legit OG geek. All right. So the, the point is we did the first year, the first event, sent out that big message to shame the Koretsu Forum and, and anyone else who's charging startups to pitch and to shame events who are ch- trying to charge startups to pitch at their events to, uh, you know, investors in the audience. And it died. Those events died. Kretsu Forum in America, uh, certainly in the Bay Area, was em- embarrassed out of existence. And then they pop up in Europe and, you know, Asia, you know, in places where, you know, that message. But it's been widely adopted in America, at least, and hope, I, I pray to God, it's not happening in India, where now that India is popping off or in Africa or in one is. But we got a, that geek ethos of, uh, you know, what the norm is. Uh, just like these game developers back bringing it back to the point of you know Amazon trying to uh, capitalize monopolize the time and intellectual property of their gaming team members um no that ain't cool uh you guys shouldn't stand for that and you should call out that bad behavior just as we did uh in the, in the startup ecosystem of calling out the bad actors who were charging startups to pitch in the investors the good investors don't stand for that will, never will uh, and they uh, ping any of them and they will very loudly, uh, you know, stand up for the fact that that is not that behavior is not welcome. And we need to consist. It's, it's like the Nazism of startup land. We have to embarrass it out of existence. Tyler, I, I love it. I can only imagine the like the smiles on the, those investor faces when they were like virtually sticking two fingers up to the rest of that group going, this is how you really do it. I just, I just yes. love the marker put down yeah. by you guys. It's doing. Yeah. Hey, 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 real, just, just real, real, real quick, real quick. Hey, Tyler, if you don't mind, Umesh is in the crowd. Umesh, if you could raise your hand. He's in India. He's a big time AI startup CEO dude. I think it may be uh, beneficial to have him up on stage. Okay. Uh, he could give you some pretty cool perspective. I, I want to hear Francine. Your uh, mic Tyler. is yeah. your mic isn't as good as it normally is. If yeah. but I want to, I want to hear what you want to say. Yeah, Dr. Francine. I- well, if I can, yeah. I, I'd like to say that that changed the industry fundamentally for for the future and going forward. So, uh, you know, I, and I was so proud of you and Jason. Thanks. Yeah. I think Jason, Jason even recently uh, organized an event. It's called Meet Our Funds. Yes. So instead of the startup pitch the funds, the funds are pitching the startup. Yeah. Yeah, he did, he did a yeah, live stream on YouTube last week about that, yeah. Tyler, yeah, yeah. there are two other 
two of those, you know, supporting little details. The state of Washington, where I've moved to, mm-hmm. versus the state of California, have different, you know, laws with respect to things like that. Um, so that's one one piece to that. But also, Amazon has kind of categorically failed in games. You know, the expectation uh, of what they were going to try to accomplish and what they actually delivered over the last fistful of years. That's that's probably another very key PR uh, tactic that they did, which is that they got pretty public about about uh, throttling that back because they you know if they want to continue to hire people like you're saying in the game space, they need to recruit talent. They're going to have to be really public about that because those un those unsavory business practices they they, they sprinkle out of Amazon every so often. Um, is Don- Donish had his hand up? I was trying to invite him up, so. But then he disappeared. So. I have a quick question, Tyler. Yeah, go ahead. So the article is what's in question is the fact that the Amazon or any other company is trying to claim ideas that's done outside of work. So not ideas. So if you're working on, because now we're in this work from home space. Yeah. So defining like when oh, your hours great are over point. is going to be a question. And yeah. then on top of that, just because I deal in the government and I have to be careful about where I use my data and I'm using my personal computer, I'll let you guys know, because I VPN into sites because my computer is actually much, much faster than the, what they will issue me. So um, I wanted to say, but if I am using a uh, an issued laptop from a company which you should not be doing. If you plan on designing something on your own, you really need to use your own property because you sign documents when you first start uh, working there. I believe it's under, um, it's typically in your IT policies when it comes to security, but they tell you specifically that anything that's done on a company laptop or government laptop is actually, or on their network is owned by them. So it's up to the user's behest to not use company property to design to work or do anything that's personal hell that actually even includes emails Uh, a lot of people don't pay attention to it a lot of companies don't enforce it but that also includes your email you're not supposed to actually be checking your personal email on those laptops either just so you know put it in perspective so yes amazon's fucked up for even thinking that but if it when it if they have it already written down you've signed the paper that you know if that that anything that's done on this laptop that's been issued to you is considered property of the company. Right. So yeah, you got to read those TCs. Such a good people. point now that we're going into we're working from anywhere. And and by the way, you're in a different time zone than, you know, so it gets really gray and that the, the device thing becomes critical. Yeah. And in, this in happens. Way, Tyler, isn't, it, isn't it surprising this has taken quite so long for something like this to pop up? In the last 10 years, the, the culture of, you know, having a side hustle, having a side gig, has really, you know, has really taken off as, as, as particularly in Europe, entrepreneurialism has sort of um, sprouted um, aggressively. And in, in, in employment contracts, it says your time, all, all of your time and attention belongs to the company. So there's a, there's a kind of tension between those two things where, where employment contracts require you to devote all of your time and attention to your day job. And yet this sort of cultural trend towards side side gig or side hustle. Yeah. So it's surprising maybe it's taken so long for this to emerge as a problem. Yeah. It, it's 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 here just some some historical anecdotes that a lot of people don't know about. Like Twitter was a side hustle of uh, Podio or what? No, what did uh, what did they call their podcasting app? Um, Evan and Biz and Jack. Uh, it was really Evan's thing. Um, and Jack was an employee at the you know. Uh, Evans um, 
podcasting company and they were dying and it wasn't working and they had a brainstorm sessions. They're like, well, you know, we need to come up with something new because this we're too early. They were, they were way too early for podcasting and we're trying to do a podcasting company and it wasn't sticking. They were too early as usual because they're all totally brilliant individuals. And, um, and Jack had this idea for Twitter. Okay, well, let's try it out. And it was just a little side hustle that, you know, an idea that he had. Well, it was his idea, but he did it on company time. He brought it up during the company brainstorming session of, you know, what other things could we do? Anyone have any good ideas how we could pivot the company? And, uh, you know, he and Biz did it on their own as two individuals separately, kind of, you know, even at their house, you know, whatever. But it was done under the context of, you know, as employees of the company. So the company pivoted. And then they told the investors, hey, we're pivoting the company. They like the idea so much. Hey, if you don't like this new idea, that's fine. We'll buy you out. <laughs> so you won't be part of this new company, Twitter. And, uh, you know, that it got very strange. And then you have uh, uh, Notch, Marcus, who did um, Minecraft. He was working at King, which had Candy Crush. And, you know, luck, good on the Candy Crush team, who are, are by the way, are fantastic uh, fellas Sebastian and, and Thomas who they speak in my events many times over the years and in fact they were they sponsored the very first year that I did the event in Stockholm and God bless you guys thank you that you know enabling me to do what I did in Sweden and uh, and God bless them that they didn't try and claim ownership of Minecraft because Marcus came out of King King Games who's the makers of Candy Crush and then he went, you know, independent and did Minecraft. And they could have been like, oh, we saw you working on that on your laptop one day at work. You know, we own Minecraft. I mean, they didn't do that. Honor so. and shame. Like, those are important in any kind of transaction, business, you know, because you only get so far with the bullshit. Yeah, but you know? my point is with, with startups these days, you know, people hear the word startups. They start hearing, you know, cash register sounds when they hear the word startup. Did you, you know what I mean? That you hear the word startup. People hear this sound in the back of their head, like, oh, I, oh, you're doing what? You're starting a little, huh? I want, you know, how much of that? I got, I'm I'm 50% of this thing, right? Yeah. You you used my phone to start that thing, right? So you got to, people got to be really smart about this and watch out because uh, Amazon, you know, especially with this whole work from home, work remote, all that jazz. So just be careful. So, and by the way, this, by the that, way. yeah. Sorry, Tyler. I, I think Google intentionally asked their staff to spend some hours a week to to, to create new ideas for themselves, right? Right. Yes. Google, yeah. Oh, yeah. And th that's a really interesting point, Cheryl. Yeah, they used to be called the 20% time, where 20% yes. of Googlers' time was used on their own projects in at at your desk with Google laptops. And you think that was, you know, um, and that was the very early days of Google where they were needing to grow Google into what it is today. And some of the things that came out of that were Gmail, for example. And many of the, you know, Google Docs and a lot of the things that came out were employees, you know, coming up with ideas, Google Photos, blah, 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 blah. You, you think that was them being nice to you to let you play around on your own time? They're, no, they realize like when people feel like they're autonomous to do whatever they want, you know, that's when they get really creative rather than be like, OK, this is forced creativity time. We need new ideas for the company. Um, more like in the in the Twitter version of the story that I gave it was like, oh, well, let's do an offsite and go hang out, you know, 
let's go out into the uh you know take an uh off-site you know and companies do this all the time yeah, these yeah, question is, yeah. do they give them like ownership of that particular project? No, you guys, what the look, hell? Can I, can I Cheryl, in? This get, is like a come age on. old, this is a super age old issue, you guys. Yeah. I mean, I've been practicing for 25 years. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, yeah, it's yeah, in your yeah. agreement. So, so it's very clear that the 20% at Google, it's, it's giving you the right to invest and do new things you want to do for Google. That's part of your employment. And um, I think it was Elle, is it Ella who brought up earlier, if you really want to do something on your own, make sure you're doing it on your own equipment at allegedly outside office hours. Don't use any company. This all started because people are doing work around the clock, as you say, and you have a lot of information from your company that you're doing. So if it's related to your work, they're going to own it. If it's off, you can't argue that you did it at 11 o'clock at night. But if you're doing a, a wholly separate side hustle, arguably that's not going to fall within that. It's not that you know, if you want to keep it clean, again, don't do it on their computers. Um, and the example you gave there, Tyler Twitter, I mean, they suggested it to the company. So I, I would say, yeah, it's definitely going to be theirs. The Google stuff, sure, it's going to be theirs. Minecraft, they could argue it's a wholly separate game than, than Candy Crush, and they did it on their own. So, but this has been going on for decades, right? As soon yeah. as uh, you know, you, uh... as soon as you become an employee of big corporations, usually you sign a code of conduct. At the very beginning, when you join the company, you sign a code of conduct and anything that you do during the time of your employment will become their patent, we will become their proprietary. So whatever it's you the, do, it's the invention agreement. It's the invention agreement. Business, it's stronger than the code of conduct. It's actually in your employment agreement. The code the of business, conduct is a policy. It's, let no, me finish. Unless you let, unless Unless the business name or something, the idea is under somebody's name, until and unless you're under their employment, you cannot have anything on your own. That's uh, true for most of the corporations. No, so it's the invention agreement. You can file the patent under your own name, but you, in your inventions agreement, which every single employee signs, um, it's going to say you assign your patents to us. Again, it's you've got to carve it outside of the work scope. And as everyone's discussing here, it's more prevalent now with the around-the-clock hours and the gig economy and stuff. So people just need to be more careful if they really want to try and claim something separate. It, it can't, you know, it also distinguish it from what they actually were hired to do at their work. And then also, um, Ella brought up another really good point, which is anything you do on a laptop, a work laptop, they either own or have access to especially your emails so people don't get that they're they own all of your emails anything you say in email is not your property or confidential they're usually any big corporations monitoring those at all times can and I add another layer to this Tyler? Hmm? Tyler can I add another layer to this from the industry I'm in okay. uh, it's not just equipment but also if the company, let's take an example, if the company invests in your skill development for work, let's say in blockchain certification, and then you choose to, on your equipment, use that skill to do something else on your own, the mm. company actually does have a claim that we invested. So there's a new trend in edtech, particularly in personal adult skill development, where people are saying, no, thank you. I will pay my own to go learn this technology rather than be sponsored by the company because then you can claim that the skill was learned on your behalf. Mm. So that's starting but to happen. I would already. like to add to that, though. So the nuance with that particular policy um, 
is mostly around like if you if they pay for some type of education or training you and and it's written down there that's why uh they whoever that might is dealing with that could probably fight it so the company policy says that you owe them x amount of years of service not that they have access to whatever you create using that skill it's more like you have you're more like indentured to work for them x amount of additional time uh, of that. And if you don't meet that time quota, you have to pay the money back for that education. At least that's how it is in the U.S. Yeah. Um, so it's not just what the clause is. Yeah. It's not just also, that money, but uh, multiple training, If they're studying for training, it's so, because they see it as a value to your, the, what you're doing for the company. Again. No, uh, exactly. It's not just for the company. Uh, uh, I'm not sure if you guys have heard about this Google engineer called Varun Gulshan, who in its 20% of time did what no one could do it. He cracked the diabetic uh, blindness problem. There's a, there's a big hospital in uh, South India called Aravind Eye Hospital. And uh, people can just walk in there and get their eyes checked, uh, but they were pretty slow. So this guy, what he did is that in his 20% of time, he... Uh, somehow pulled his string and got all, all of those uh, diabetic retinotherapies uh, images uh, and uh, convinced Jeff Dean, who was the uh, Google's uh, chief engineer, to work on him. So he pulled a lot of strings. And this was quite a remarkable project. Google still take his name proudly. And uh, uh, Google actually got uh, uh, this new uh, retinotherapy uh, patent. But it actually, they, they opened it up and uh, it helped a lot of people in southern india so that's that's the view okay this guy named yeah he, he had implemented right. 20, 20% time is clearly anything you do if you if he says i did this during my 20% time and involved google people google would own that and they can choose to put his you know give him the patent they can choose to do whatever they want with it so that's a good a good example there but if you did it during google's 20% time google owns that and if you don't claim you're doing it during your 20% time. Like you start that argument with, I did it outside of work wholly if you really wanted to own something. So that's a, that's a great example. Google's 20% time is awesome. It gives people to, you know, inspires their creativity. And as Tyler said, there's Gmail, Google Maps. There's a bunch of stuff that came out of that 20% time. Okay. Uh, and the same thing's true in medicine as well. This, but is Google one of those company, one of those companies where it's like employee owned and I'm using air quotes, you know, like, uh, that's what they say, like it's employee owned, so the employees are invested in it as well. Well, so it's um, an mm -hmm. average top tier um, engineer gets compensated like 100K per quarter just in stocks. And an average average um, engineer would get like around 40, 30 to 40K just in stocks, and that's every quarter. So the compensation is very good. And the, the churn rate, though, it's like a revolving door. Google especially is a revolving door. A lot of people just uh, come and go. Um, but it's all, it's not really, I mean, like your air quotes, it's not, you know, they may, they may make it seem like that or say that, but, you know, at the end of the day, we all know Google is making tons no, it's of a money. Public, it's a public company. So as you said, their ownership is the stock that the company gives them. There's not, they're not air quotes, public, you know, employee. Te tech companies exactly, are yeah. very smart about using shares to uh, try and keep people at the company in what we call exactly. golden That's handcuffs, yeah. where they give you enough equity in the company where you feel like you haven't, I mean, even Starbucks does this, by the way, with their team members, where that's why Starbucks has a lower turnover than, say, you know, other a, a normal coffee uh, franchise. So or McDonald's, for example, where the employees really don't get any equity in the companies. But Starbucks do get just enough to make them feel like they have a little bit of 
a stake in in you know it's clever how it's a very so Tyler, exactly yes. that's what I was getting do, do they that lose their do they... power they'll yeah. keep giving their ideas without any court right. oh by the way quarrel. the guy who made the frappuccino was from my local starbucks in santa monica on third street promenade he got a gold rolex for in <laughs> design you know uh, creating the starbucks frappuccino by the way go ahead is it is the like this misspelling of your name in the contract of Starbucks? I'm just curious. Say what? <laughs> the misspelling of the name, like if a misspelling or, of a customer's the mispronunciation name, the of the contract. name too. <laughs> I don't like on the cups, you know how they misspell the names. I, I can uh, see why no, your no, name. No, I, they, I can see why you might have an issue with that, Hammond. <laughs> no, but yeah, I've, I've heard that too. I mean, I've certainly had it. You know, where people instead of writing Doctor Ransom have written Dr. Manson, like Charlie Manson, or something completely not related. But I had heard that it's part of their strategy, knowing that people would then take a photo and then share it with their friends and say, look at how Starbucks misspelled my name. Ah, Donna. I invited Donna in because the next headline is the following, and she was the first person that came to mind. Circle announces intention to become a bank fully regulated by the F. Federal Reserve, the OCC, and the FDIC, which could make USDC a de facto central bank digital currency. Crypto giant circle has announced its intention to become a bank fully regulated by the Federal Reserve. And the question is, what do, what do we make of that? Um, and so I would love to give Donna the first opportunity to comment on this one. Uh, oh, there. Got, hopefully you're able to get on stage. I clicked invite on stage. There we go. Welcome yeah, back, Donna. Hi. Hey. Sorry, sorry for if there's any noise in the background. Um, it's my little robot. It's my little robot vacuum cleaner. Um, so, so, so let's see. Uh, well, Circle wants to be a bank because if you look at what the, any of the proposed regulations are, it's squarely at stable coins, and that stable coins would have to get a license from the Fed. But if you're a bank, then you already have the requisite the requisite licensing from the Fed to be able at least to act like a bank. Now, that doesn't mean that will cover all of the issuances of the stable coins. Uh, Circle is just so that people understand it's not unregulated at the moment. It is regulated by New York. The New York State uh, DFS, uh, Department of Financial Services, regulates a circle, um, and they do whatever they do on a, on a quarterly, monthly, or whatever the rules are, are basis there. Um, but they want to get ahead of the curve because they know that there's regulations. There is a bill at the House under, um, under um, Representative Beyer, and it points to stablecoins in many ways in which they would have to get banks to be licensed by, by Treasury, et cetera. So I think it's Circle getting ahead of the curve, um, and there's no reason why not. They have the money. They want to be, they are going to do a SPAC, so put everything in there, be regulated in a way that reduces the uncertainties and and enables you to be having the longest amount of longevity around. Okay. Thank you for that. Very clear um, background on that. So the next big article at the moment, and I just got to do a quick little research on this. I'm almost certain. Oh, yes. Okay, good. So the next headline is, uh, and it says it's breaking news. People are talking about uh, equity management software company Carta raises $500 million led by Silver Lake at a valuation of $7.4 billion. Carta is um, a way, they've kind of pioneered this way to have digital shares. Uh, uh, it makes it very easy for people to do all of their transferring of shares and ownership of shares 
Um, for, for example, from the Wikipedia page, it says Carta specializes in capitalization, cap table management and valuation software. The company digitizes paper stock certificates along with stock options, warrants and derivatives to help companies, investors and employees manage their equity and their shares. While trading a real-time picture of company ownership, the company also operates the Carta X private stock exchange and issues studies, and so it makes it possible for people to exchange their shares even before they've IPO'd, essentially. So um, remember that event I was talking about uh, that Jason and I and started out back in 2008, where we were, you know, had startups pitch on stage for free, absolutely for free. And the audience was, you know, the best investors of all time. Well, in the third or fourth year of that event, there was a company who pitched on stage called eShares. And that eShares company is now today Carta. And that's, this is Carta today uh, is now seven, uh, uh, just raised $500 million at a 7.4 billion valuation. And we, we love Carta. Like startups, yeah. really all, love all startups love Carta. It's we do fantastic. Too, Chris. Yeah. Blue Muse is Carta too. Yeah, yeah. They're great. And I have a special shout out to Manu Kumar, who brought them into the event. And uh, Manu used to come every year to the event. And Manu is a fantastic investor. And um, he found eShares. I, I believe he, he still is the chairman of the company, in fact. And um, he was at uh, Menlo Ventures. Uh, he might still be. And anyway, brought in eShares, which is now Carta. Carta has exploded. It's a genius solution. And it's one of these uh, companies that came out of this event that, that Jason started. I was the executive producer for the first, I don't know, eight years of the event. Also, we had Mint come out of the very first year. We had uh, Dropbox come out of like the third year. Um, Fitbit as well. The Aura Ring came out around year six. because We ended up doing this for about eight or nine years. And each year there's been a really breakout, you know, company then, and certainly Carta is one of them now. Um, and, and to that spirit, Tyler, they do give the service out completely free to startups and we're enjoying that. So thank you. Yeah, for yeah the- it's brilliant. It's totally brilliant. Kudos to Manu for finding that and uh, having them launch at the event. So the, that's the, honestly the biggest news uh, coming out of, um, out of tech, the tech sphere at the moment. And so um, just having fond memories of that and watching them pitch on stage for the first time. Um, Tyler, uh, a short one regarding that one. Yeah. I did actually find an old video of you uh, in Stockholm talking about this, but okay, what's actually give Stockholm Tech the big uh, uh, acceleration forward is that we have everybody pinging us uh, on Twitter. You're sharing pictures on Twitter. You're using our, and I thought, hmm, this sounds familiar. (laughs) Thank you, Johan. Yes, there are similarities between Tech News Around the World and the Stockholm Tech Meetup, which all the Swedes or Scandinavians in the audience know what Stockholm Tech Meetup is, which unfortunately we've not been able to do um, every month as we did now for nearly nine years. And yeah, it's it's like, hey, you know, Uh, We share news, we use Twitter, and uh, we tell everyone, if you find anything interesting, put it on Twitter with the hashtag Stockholm Tech, and that blew up, uh, and it's kind of part of the the secret sauce of the the Stockholm Tech meetup. Yep, there there are interesting similarities. However, when if we ever do events again (laughs) live, 
what I'm the plan is to merge the two very cleverly. Um, and I really do hope to do big tech events and conferences and festivals again with, you know, all the speakers I keep mentioning who, who speak at these events who I would love to bring into Clubhouse. And the way that we could do this is if they speak at any conference I ever do again, I'm going to have the speakers on stage use their phone and join on stage and rather than use a microphone because now we don't need microphones because we for all you know i and cammy and cheryl and lakeisha and layla and jason and you know maybe half of the people on stage right now we might for all you know be together live on a physical stage at a physical conference and it's gonna happen it's gonna happen right but notice if we were on stage together at an event, we would not be needing microphones. And half the people listening in the audience could be physically in sh- together, physically in an audience in the same room. And we could have some of us on stage are virtual speakers remotely. Some of us are physically together. Some of us in this audience are actually together in an auditorium. Some of us are not. We're at home in our toilets and our bathrooms or walking our dogs. And that's what I love about this, because as an event organizer, one of the truly huge groundbreaking things that Clubhouse is enabling that I don't think they even realize yet that they're enabling is as an event organizer, it used to be incredibly burdensome to find a venue with a proper uh, audio system and, and seating. And now as an event organizer myself of, you know, more than a decade, I feel that I could organize events anywhere. Anywhere is a venue. I can organize an event in a public park in you know or in a on a cruise ship or in a yeah, forest. Yeah, can you please do the cruise Tyler? I know all of us would just sign up immediately. Yeah, but imagine that I go to a forest which costs me nothing to rent out because by the way the venues when I do conferences, I normally have to pay about $200,000 for the venue and another $100,000 to the audio video team to set up the audio video and the mics and the stage and the lights and the blah, 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 blah. And if I go do it in a forest and I say, hey, Cammy and Cheryl and Lakeisha and Layla and Jason and Lucia and Shane, why don't do us a favor? We don't have an audio video team, nor do we need one anymore. Just put in your earbuds, log into the app. We can all hear each other. The end. Now the whole world is a stage. And the whole world can be the audience and join us remotely. And by the way, oh, let's ping in Bill Gates on this next issue. Guess who's in the next session starting in one minute is, you know, Richard Branson's going to join us for the next one because we're talking about space travel. And I got, you know, Jeff Bezos and Bill Gates um, to talk about space travel. So I, to me, the, this platform of dig, uh, enabling, it, it, it really allows anyone to be able to create events anywhere and you don't have to pay the venues and the venues you know we don't need the audio video component anymore honestly or certainly not the audio component so anyway what, what is the thing I, I i, I have sorry. a hearing disorder i'm actually deaf on one ear and lo- have lost a couple of frequencies on the other one and the thing is here that by by using the phones for the audio here i can set my volume uh, that is comfortable for me in an auditorium or a venue where you are in, the, in a seminar, 
you need to have enough of speakers, enough of volume so everybody can hear you. Hear everybody, that the ones that have good hearing, they can have a lower volume. Right. Us that need a bit more, we can actually That's have that. And it's echo-free. There is no uh, dark sectors where you have the different interference in between uh, okay. the different uh, speaker towers that you can get at a concert, for example. Mm -hmm. You are done. Thank you. Uh, some of my team members, like Rengent in the audience, uh, uh, helps uh, each year when we do the conference. And we have a team of about 100 plus volunteers who help uh, at the conference. And Rengent each year helps uh, organize and manage uh, the volunteers. And uh, he's here in, as well each day when we do this event here. So there's people who are part of my events in Sweden who even are here in Tech News Around the World, which I love, by the way. So Tyler, yes. So so when you when you bring in those global folks, yeah. I hope it's the real them and not their virtual personas like the Nvidia CEO. Yeah, we'll never know. <laughs> yeah, you, <laughs> that's going to be amazing. We'll never know. Hey, yeah. So if um, you know, yeah, if you get uh, an amazing speaker, and um, now they might just send their virtual uh, avatar version, and we will never know, and that will be amazing because then as a conference organizer, boy, all of a sudden I'm able to get everybody to it. Elon Musk's everywhere. He's speaking at 20 conferences simultaneously. <laughs> How's this, uh, which, you know, black magic even possible. So um, fantastic. What are your thoughts well, about Hopin, Tyler? Yeah. And some of those newer kind of refreshed generation yeah. event platforms. Well, they're, they're certainly making a lot of money um, from investors anyway. Um, I, I think they're cool. I think even to me, what's ideal is this kind of format that Clubhouse deserves a lot of credit for pioneering, with the exception that I would love a tiny little uh, screen above our heads on the stage to be able to share content there rather than forcing everyone to the Twitter account to see the recent tweets. I would love to be able to show the, the headline I'm talking about and a screenshot of the article right above our heads. And whether it's a YouTube video which oftentimes it is, and I'm telling you, you have to see this YouTube video that we shared yesterday right above our heads. or So a little video stage content piece of I could share images or videos or links above my head. Then, So, then so it's this done. and not Teams or Zoom or WebEx. Right. Really this is just this. so much snappier. Like, I, you know, yeah. I just poked in right now to say something real quick. It didn't lag. Yeah. So I love it. And at the same time, how do we create the meetings outside of the meetings, though? Because, I mean, of course, what we do here in tech yes. news is always engaging and yes. it's fun and it's fresh, you know, but here's, so here's often how. for me, it's the meetings outside of yep. the meetings in the coffee shop, on the beach sometimes, yep. depending on the location, beach, where barbecue. the connections really yeah. happen. Yeah. So the, I think that's where the they if they could optimize the clubs thing, like the and on this case, the tech news club, where you click on the title of this room or the word tech news above our heads, it takes you to another page. And that page could have, hopefully will have in the future, the, all of the other sister companion conversations going on. So we would say, oh, as a conference, there's 10 different side rooms happening simultaneously about, you know, there's other deep dive rooms going on simultaneously. So if you want to get more niche into particular topics, we have an NFT room going on right now led by Ame and da, 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 and and there's an AI room going on, you know, with Dave and and there's a cybersecurity room going on with Johan and there's a, you know, international tech room going on with Messi and there's an India tech room going on with Vinay. And that's what we do at the conferences that I do. 
And so, yes, I'll... and so, so those are co- the concurrent sessions. That's what we call them as academics. Yes. We have the plenary, yes. which are the main That's stage, right. and then the concurrent. Yep. But then I'm talking about like bumping into people in the I know hallway, what you mean. like. Yeah. Do you think you're going to go into this room? I don't know. Do you want to grab a cup of coffee? In between rooms. Yes. Yeah. I think that's where a lot of the That's where the magic happens at conferences. We're well aware of that. Yep. Lakeisha, that's what uh, I proposed. I I was asking Tyler about Hopin. Hopin. And there's a few number of others. They've segmented those different types of conversations. So it is kind of interesting. It's great. I mean, it's not just interesting. It's freaking awesome. Yeah. Okay, so we got to get back into the headlines here. So, yeah. hold on. So the next big one we talked about Carta. I got Qu- quickly, yes, Tyler, quickly. I think it's. I would recommend you to. No, I was just saying, Tyler, you are really well positioned to start something like Ops as a service or going forward. Let's just start up as a service. Okay, so the next headline is from the New York Times: How soccer industry database called Transfer Market arrives at its highly influential player valuations, even as data is crowdsourced from volunteers and staff. And that's genius <laughs> because it's kind of like a Wikipedia for profit where you've crowdsourced the work of all of the data collection. So it's a soccer industry database, Transfer Market. By the way, uh, um, TechCrunch did a little bit of this with Crunchbase where all of the transactions that happen from startups and all of this, and, and a lot of it is their own data that their journalists are building. So they found a way to monetize what their journalists are doing. And they use now AIs to scan all the previous articles of all the fundraising announcements. And you use these fundraising announcements and then you realize how much money did India actually raise? Well, we can look at all the articles you know, over the past six months and now they're in a database in an organized way that we can search and start doing, you know. Um, so databases are very valuable, but databases need to be filled with data. Oftentimes it's from tech articles in the case of tech journalism, but how a soccer industry database called Transfer Market arrives at its highly influential player valuations, even as the data is crowdsourced from volunteers and staff. And that's because Fans of soccer themselves are obsessed with statistics. And as games are happening, they can provide all of the help build the database. Soccer takes the players' valuations posted on the website Transfer Market extremely seriously, has never really stopped to ask where they came from. It came from the fans. It's kind of interesting building a valuable database based on the free work of fans. Yeah, if you can pull that off, kudos. Uh, Wikipedia had a whole, you know, it's a question. Would Wikipedia have worked if it was for a for-profit company? Would people, but by the way, people accuse um, the Huffington Post of being a lot of that. They built a very valuable company out of people doing blog before, you know, people had their own uh, ability to do their own blog posts on Medium or on Substack or whatever. They would go on um the Huffington Post and it was Ariana Huffington and her friends and her friend. she gave her friends a, a space to have, conversations and an audience and it just snowballed and then it became the Huffington Post and then it was a a valuable asset because it had built a loyal audience and then they sold it. Similar kind of thing. So yeah, it happens. The next big article from Bloomberg, Facebook delays its office reopenings in the US until January, 2022. Facebook originally hoped for half of it to be open by September and hundred percent by October, but there's this thing called Delta going around. You heard of this? Now there's this thing called iota going around. This variant of some virus, it's gone viral. 
And IOTA apparently is even more contagious uh, than uh, Delta and even a higher mortality rate than Delta. That's very concerning. And maybe if we can ping John in and he more than anybody or Donish, do you happen to know about uh, IOTA as the newest variant? Yeah, so IOTA is still pretty early. Um, I was reading about it yesterday uh, to prepare for health things around the world this weekend. But I was going to say that one thing we know right now is that there's early signs that it is an escape variant. What I mean by that, and John and I actually were talking about it on the back end, and there's just so much going on in this space right now. IOTA's biggest concern is that it is sort of uh, strong arming us to to put out the third booster that's a modified mm. variant. And the problem is that the clinical trials did not include testing of the IOTA variant. So we're sort of now one step behind. But um, so IOTA variant uh, is, again, just to not scare people, but uh, the IOTA variant is very, very small currently. We're not seeing incredible amounts of cases of it. Uh, if you guys want to look it up, it's B1526. Um, and it's got uh, some of the same very you know issues. So L452R is a mutation that's actually involved in the IOTA variant. And uh, yeah, I was hoping John was going to be up here because uh, it, it's just there's very little known about it. But what we do know is that currently uh, IOTA, uh, the 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 earliest data is showing us that uh, even though it was first detected in New York City. In November of 2020, we've actually not seen a significant number of cases. But when we have seen those cases, those cases tend to be a little bit more severe. Hmm. And so that's all we know right now. We don't. Uh, it's just a variant of interest. It's not a variant of concern. Hmm. Um, and See, and, and, and that's as much as we know about it at this okay. point. Thank you. And there's is also that, a report, that, though, uh, uh, article. Sorry about the IOTA. Uh, it's just there's a, from the senior standpoint, it's actually got a higher transmissibility and immune, uh, like escape, as uh, Dr. Anish was saying, the potential. And I think the report it's a preprint. I'll I'll tweet it out. Uh, the fatality rate is 62 to 82 percent among the uh, elderly population. Uh, that increases the infection rate there too. So it's a bit of a concern. But Moderna actually actually has reported that their uh, studies have shown that it does cover it. I'm not sure. Oh, IOTA. I'll leave it up to yeah. That's what Moderna's reported. Okay. So I'm not sure. I'll let me uh, dive deeper into that one. Yeah, because what we do know is that, and this is super important, it's actually yeah. uh, the Delta variant is more dominant. Mm, yeah. So we know and that. It, yeah, and IOTA has only been found in a few cases in the New York region right now, right? Exactly. And yeah. what we saw was that as Delta rose, IOTA actually took a back step and we saw Delta mm. take over. So Delta is yeah. still a more dominant variant. Uh, Delta, uh, you know, the, the vaccines are effective against Delta in terms of reducing hospitalizations and deaths. And so we're still in good shape. The concern that I have is that as Delta gets accounted for with the vaccine, that IOTA, which does tend to be a little bit more dangerous, uh, end up, ends up becoming the more dominant variant. I just I'm I think part of it is I think a lot of us in the space are, are getting tired of chasing variants. <laughs> uh, and that's kind of where we are. And the funny thing is I actually blocked my Twitter account to all COVID. I promised I won't do any more tweets of COVID. But now I'm like, fuck, I need to start that up again. And, it's and affecting actually, seniors. I had a related, I had a related uh, set of uh, news, Tyler, that I was, uh, I, I, I saw that you commented on it as well, which was about the Wuhan leak. If you want, we can jump yes. to that right oh, now. Oh, let's later. do that. Yeah. yeah, that was crazy. Yeah. So, so uh, go ahead. Go ahead, Tyler. Why don't you go? With a video 
on CNBC, if I remember correctly, um, or was CNN perhaps, or BBC, some very high-profile uh, news outlet and video, where they're interviewing um, a advisor to the WHO who appears to be American based on his accent. And the issue is about the now just finished second probe, from if I understand correctly, as they're calling it, uh, from the, the WHO was wanting to go back to Wuhan to figure out if uh, where patient zero came from and how this really all got started and the origins of COVID, essentially. And one of the um, members of that second probe, which is now just finishing, is a Danish uh, individual who made a comment that they believe uh, it's likely that it came as an accidental lab leak. And that, but more importantly, it's being revealed now as a result of this, that China only allowed this second WHO probe uh, into the origins of COVID inside of China if they agreed that uh, to to the out that the outcome of the probe would be that uh, there's no need to investigate further and that China is not really um the origins of COVID-19, just basically neutering the results of the probe before it even happened. That was the conditions under which China was willing to let them even come back and do the probe. And now the investigators from the WHO are saying, hey, this is bullshit. China's forcing us to say nothing happened, that there's no, there, there's no here here. And we need to raise uh, the awareness of this. And and now the WHO advisor that they were interviewing, who clearly knows the, the team who was the, of investigators, is saying, this is bullshit. And we need to do the, in, the international community needs to stand up together and insist that there be a, a proper probe because China's intentionally interfering in this whole thing. And um, it's making a, a kind of a shit show out of this second probe. Uh, and not co- not cooperating, insisting that the outcome of the probe be determined um, preemptively before there's, the probe's even been done or the investigation's even really been done, and that it's a mockery of of the whole process. So, um, yeah. And what's fascinating, Tyler, is how bipartisan this whole thing is. You know, it's very rare to find uh, experts from both sides of uh, the political spectrum. Uh, agreeing on something, uh, especially when it relates to COVID. So just to kind of talk about the people, Jamie Metzl used to be part of the Obama uh, Obama administration before that, the Clinton administration. He's the guy that's in the video. It's really worth watching. Very scathing report around what happened and how the WHO, and he was an advisor to the WHO, um, and he's an Atlantic fellow, which is a huge sort of uh, uh, honor. And so he, you know, he's, he's kind of, essentially has now guaranteed he will not be part of any further administrations, uh, which was a huge deal from a, you know, political operative. And so he came out, he's been doing, you know, he's do, he did a documentary on this where they actually look through all of the information that is available to talk about what actually happened. And the WHO agreed. That is the bigger thing. The narrative, the WHO, because China, uh, you know, is a, uh, is, is a active member now of the WHO, uh, you know, uh, the WHO actually agreed to this. And Dr. Embarek, who is the WHO person, if you guys all remember that video of there was a, a physician who's also the scientific, uh, you know, lead of that probe, 
came out and said, oh, there, there needs no further investigation. And anybody, and again, if people know my political leanings, I'm definitely not right-leaning. But despite, you know, def- different people like Redfield, who I don't like, he messed up CDC, CDC's response to the pandemic, but Redfield was ostracized around the entire medical community for saying, I think this might be a lab leak. <laughs> and actually, I, I, I tweeted that out that he recently is saying, like, you know, everybody went after me when I said this. And it was so politically dangerous for him to do that. But he did do that. And now we have somebody, Jamie Metzl, from the other side saying, oh, no, no, this was definitely going on. And now the WHO, I kid you not, you got to see this article from Yahoo Finance, uh, Yahoo News where they literally went through and they what they they went through re, a danish uh uh, uh news uh, yeah uh investigator that that literally now is saying oh we said it could have been a lab leak this whole time so who is actually taking a step back again and saying oh if you actually look through the way that they translated what we said was incorrect Oh, that's March. that was the other point is China wants final edit and and approval of any messages that come out of this investigation, basically. Exactly. So if I may, um, and thanks for bringing that up. I had the honor to interview Jamie Metzl and throughout the pandemic, he has been consistent in his um, in his stance regarding um, the possibility of it not being um, natural in origin, if you will. And um, so I pinned it to my uh, Twitter account if you'd like a deeper dive on Jamie Metzl. Very cool. Just to, also- just to make a clear distinction here, I want to be very, very clear. Jamie Metzl is saying not that it was a manufactured virus, or maybe he has in the past, Cammy, and you can correct me, but in this stuff, in the documentary, it's more about how this could have been an accidental leak not a manufactured leak or, you know, uh, and that it was from animal origin, but it was mishandled um, uh, at in, in the lab in Wuhan. Those are two very separate questions, right, Cammie? And so you know, can, can we confirm that? I just want to make sure that I'm not misunderstanding because I haven't. Oh, yeah, I hear what you're saying, Dr. Donish, and I appreciate it. And um, yes, because we have, we being myself and everyone needs to be really careful in the choice of words because if we choose to shorten certain phrases, it can be misinterpreted easily. So um, feel free to correct me too if I, if I don't represent it correctly. But I will say that um, uh, we follow each other on Twitter and he has been consistent throughout the pandemic. Okay, so there's another, Cammy, uh, uh, your mic just cut off, so I hope I'm not stepping on top of you. The the there's a new addition to this there's actually two one is according to nikkei japan which is a, quite a stellar reputation um the, i have the headline right here i'm tweeting it out right now to the tech news twitter account so you can see for yourself and you know i'm not crazy but nikkei japan is reporting the headline reads um china blames us for covid while rejecting a WHO request for a probe into the Wuhan Virology Lab for COVID's origins, China suggests the UN team look into U.S. Army Institute instead. So there's that. And then there's another one um, coming out of Switzerland. Again, tweeting this out so you don't think I'm crazy. Chinese media is saying that a Swiss scientist, um, let me get his name for you, 
um, that this Swiss scientist with the name of, where is it? Someone might, uh, Wilson Edwards. Chinese media is reporting that Wilson Edwards, a Swiss biologist, and the Chinese media and social media are saying that he believes that the origins are from the U.S. And now the Swiss government comes out and says there is no Swiss citizen named, certainly no Swiss biologist named Wilson Edwards. So And so now the embassy of Switzerland in Beijing <laughs> went on their Twitter account. This is Switzerland's office in China, in Beijing, on their Twitter account. Ver it's, by the way, a verified Twitter account, embassy of Switzerland in Beijing. I'm reading it directly. Looking for Wilson Edwards, <laughs> alleged Swiss biologist cited in China, the press and social media in China over the last several days. If you exist, we would like to meet you. <laughs> this is the embassy Tyler, Tyler, this is Asif. Uh, so I much just, shade. I'll, I'll tweet it. Oops, sorry, Lagasha. I was going to say, uh, I'll tweet it out in a minute. There's an article that everyone should read in Nature, which basically uh, is a hypothesis. It says, COVID lab leak hypothesis what scientists do and don't know it might be worth reading okay but let me uh, I, I got interrupted in the john, middle john, of my... john's here tyler oh perfect uh, john if you could raise your hand we'd love to get you up so let me read this tweet from the uh swiss embassy in, there's john and i just clicked to accept you john hope the hopefully it works so the it did good so the embassy of Switzerland in Beijing says looking for Wilson Edwards, alleged Swiss biologist cited in press and social media in China over the last several days. If you exist, we would love to meet you. But it is more likely that this is fake news. And we call on Chinese press to take down the posts because we know this person doesn't exist. We've actually done the went and actually did the homework to find out if such a person exists in Switzerland. It obviously doesn't. And that's why we're calling you out, China. And by the way, China's media is unique in that the government controls the media completely, thoroughly, without, you know, fully. So the, when the Chinese media does something, it's coming from the government. I mean, just please understand that. That's how it works there. So the fact that the Chinese, quote unquote, media is quoting this uh, uh this is a na this is a political issue not just a media issue and so the embassy of switzerland calling out uh in beijing it's a verified twitter account saying please take this down this is fake news um <laughs> i didn't know the swiss were so cheeky that is uh, it is funny yeah they're adding a little humor into it anyways um i'm tweeting out this article as well a, a lot of other publications are obviously retweeting this and sharing this and just calling out China for its absurd cartoonish behavior in trying to deflect what's becoming more and more obvious by the day that it came from the lab and that they're trying to suggest. By the way, they've suggested that it's come from Australia. They've suggested that it's come from the U.S., and Japan, and uh, they have multiple theories of where it has come from. Nonetheless, they they are working very diligently to stop uh, any investigations to it coming out of Wuhan. And now the investigators themselves are blowing the whistle on it. You know what's really fascinating, though, is by suppressing this so much, they're essentially fueling the fire of the fact that this was an internal lab leak. I mean, 
clearly from the investigations that were done and what people are talking about, this doesn't appear to be, and even the data that we know that Asif was talking about, that Nature article is a very good article. And it talks about how we actually can kind of trace it back to a, uh, a bat origin. And, you know, with this specifically saying, hey, this was a uh, one of two situations. Either this was from a field exposure to COVID, which then that one employee became patient zero, or that it was mishandled in a lab. But instead, by making this like, they're essentially fueling conspiracies that this was something more nefarious. And I just don't understand what their thought process is here. It's just, uh, it seems very backwards. I think maybe they delay the disclosure of this virus. So that's the reason why they are trying to cover the uh, mismanagement for that one or two months. Oh, right. Yeah, that's a great point, Cheryl, because if they, you're right. Well, there were whistleblowers internally who, you know, the Hong Kong doctor who died, and it's like people tried to the Chinese doctor, by the way. Yeah, Chinese doctor. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're right. They the the problem is is that they if you really get into it, if you if you really follow the lab leak theory through, you necessarily have to accept the other related points that come up from that, which is they knew about it for a month and didn't do what the World Health Organization requires its members to do, which is to alert uh, the WHO immediately to stop it. That's the bigger problem. That's why they can't. That's not why they're not willing to accept that it had come from the lab, because if it did, then they more importantly failed to notify the authorities. And where and if they had notified the authorities, they could have stopped the pandemic from happening in the first place. Go ahead, Heyman. And Tyler, I'm just also wondering, like, from a global perspective, right? You know, the other story is also the fact that there are other fingers in this lab's uh, actions, right? In terms of what the research was going on, what the funding was going on. And there might be other players that may not want to be uh, divulged or, you know, uh, shown to the world. So I'm not sure what's going on. Honestly, this, like, this, all of a sudden, this story is blowing up again. Is it because there's some play with, you know, the recent Senate hearings or... Uh, that were going on with uh, bringing forth some of the, uh, uh, you know, the funding that was went into this lab, gain of function and stuff. John, yeah. are you? Hey, John, are you back? Yeah, sure, yeah. So, so I, I have, I have a, a, a very um, sort of different approach to this, and in healthcare in general, you know, there, there's this um, sort of. Uh, quality improvement imperative that the first thing you do when you find, you know, a real serious problem uh, around uh, quality is you disengage from the whole whodunit kind of approach to one of let's, let's work together. Let's figure out what the underlying issues are that could have prevented this kind of, you know, clinical error or uh, decision tree or whatever. And to me, and we've had this discussion before in this room, the big issue is, um, you know, looking towards the future rather than what I, I, I think Dan, Danish has pointed out is kind of a futile uh, whodunit uh, exercise. Um, it's how do we understand what the benefit is of gain of function um, uh, kind of research that was openly uh, reported out of the, this lab and many other, many other labs across the world have done gain of function study research. 
what is the benefit? What is the proven benefit of that? What is the, the theoretical benefit of that? And what is the risk of doing that? And how do we respond as a global community? Because if we if we get stuck in the rut of a whodunit game, I don't think we're going to end up with the kind of uh, global collaboration necessary to really minimize the risk of this going forward in the f- future. Establishing unequivocally whodunit I don't think is going to advance that cause as much as an approach of um, why are we doing gain of function research in the first place and what kind of lab protection um, uh, and, and policy practices and compliance is necessary if it's, if it's shown that the world wants to proceed with gain of function research on viruses, what kind of certification would be appropriate for a lab engaging in that kind of research so that accidental leaks don't happen? I absolutely uh, can't wrap my head around why China would deliberately release this kind of virus on its own people. I just, I, I just can't, I can't wrap my head around that. So if worst case scenario, I think this is accidental. Best case scenario, bat, best case scenario, this could be a shot across the bow of the world to, to, to take a serious look at why gain of function research is legitimized by uh, you know, institutions like the uh, EcoHealth Alliance that was funding the research in Wuhan. Um, what, 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 what legitimacy is there in the first place? And if there is legitimacy, um, how do we protect against these kind of events in the future? But the Who Done It exercise, to me, is counterproductive to our future health. John, I will say, John, so if, I can, if I can jump right? in. When um, Cheryl, you invited, um, I, I learned about this session from you where there was a Nobel laureate immunologist oh, yes. from Lincoln's Australian, and that Peter was Duhati. his point of view as well. Like, you know what? We've got to work together as a global community. So I think, yeah, yeah, between the two of you, yeah, I, I yeah, was, I was, I was in that, more. I was in that room with him, and he was speaking my voice um, exactly, yeah. and yeah. and and you know the. the so it's 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 kind of entertaining to get into almost the the gossipy phase yeah. of who done it but it's not constructive for what yeah. we really want to achieve and i agree 100% with that immunology nobel laureate from uh, australia who's in his 80s and sharp as a tack yeah that's my concern as well like we were, he, he, we're just he, getting too much into this quagmire and by the way yeah, he refused to waste his time talking about the uh, the source of the leak in the first place. And the only thing he mentioned is the only thing China could have done better is once they know it, they should have shut down the international borders, not to allow but, anybody to find and, out. And, that, can but come, be, and, and that, that kind of advisory can come out of a global, um, blameless approach to, you know, let's just forget who done like it. Like a truth and reconciliation style, Exactly, right? exactly. Like and, a root and, cause analysis. If, I agree completely. But, but John, I have to push back with one thing. It's not about who done it. It's about how did it happen. And those are two very, very different yes. questions. And yes. I feel can like I, can by jump us in? Acting, I mean, Hold on, hold on. Let me just finish my sentence. I'm sorry. I was going to say that the biggest problem that happened and what we need to be most, uh, uh, you know, uh, most cognizant of is that no matter whether it was a, whatever was fitting the narrative at that time was what was being pushed down the medical community's throat. And I think that that's what's wrong. We've got to admit to ourselves that there were people in the medical community 
that were uh, that were clearly talking about this lab leak theory, including the director of the CDC. But because he was attached to someone who across the medical community is it comes across, I mean, Trump, who, who was literally doing everything wrong in COVID. But just because someone is doing everything wrong in COVID doesn't mean that that person is automatically wrong about one aspect. And I think that any of our colleagues that were like, one second, we should figure this out because, and the reason why the origin does matter, in my opinion, is not about the gossipy stuff. I'm, I'm not big on gossip. I don't really care about that. It's more about the fact that shouldn't we have protocols to, to, to be able to evaluate whether this happened in the field or in a lab? Because if it happened in a lab, that is kind of even scarier. If, if it happened in the, in the field, at least we know where the problem was, the reporting, the conversations, and so on. But if it happened in a lab that was a BLS lab, I mean, it's, it's even at some level more concerning because that means that how are we going to have remote oversight in a country that doesn't even let the WHO do a second probe without setting the narrative? I just want to make sure that that's clear. It's not about did China do it. It's about but the group of, we have to figure out who act, what actually happened. It has to be part of the conversation. And, and I will say, we don't know with certainty what the actual origin was. And that yeah. could be important as these variants develop. And so I do want to be very clear that, you know, it, it does call into question deeper questions about how do we actually respond to this and how do we prevent it in the future? I think just blatantly saying like, well, because a root cause analysis does evaluate what actually yeah. happened. So, so can I just jump in? I mean, for One, anybody, yeah. sorry, sorry. Uh, if anybody who follows the CCP, the CCP historically has never admitted any mistakes. Uh, the CCP, the current premier, will always admit will admit a mistake made by a former premier. The CCP doesn't. So the fact that they're doing a complete avoidance. It clearly indicates there's a mistake. Nobody wants to own up to it. Uh, and that's the thing. So the, all the point of root cause analysis, where the fail-safe happened, you know, broke, uh, implies that there's been a mistake. When you've got a party in power that will never admit a mistake has happened on their watch, doesn't matter what you do, right? And that's Again, the whole thing. It's also a systems issue, right? Like, it's, I'm not talking like any country. I'm not supporting any country here, but I'm just saying it's a systems failure, right? Because if you think about it, let's say there there was highly likely there was an accident in the lab, right? And then what happened was then the, the employee probably got shit scared. And then on top, then the authorities got scared. They didn't know what was going on. They silenced doctors, right? They didn't want to get out of their, their region, right? And then the state authorities did not know about it. So that, that was another mess. Right. That's what at least I'm tying sort of like disparate information that's out there. Right. Like the same thing happened in the U.S. too. Right. Like the mass situation. People didn't weren't telling the truth. Like a lot of situations everywhere, everywhere around the world, people, the truth telling part was missing. That's the same failure that medicine has too. the doctors who get sued the most are the ones who don't disclose information to their patients. Right. And because they don't tell them if there was an accident. And that's those are the doctors who get the suit the most. And I think this is where it's getting to a problem where people are getting uh, guarding. They're guarding when they make a mistake and they try to do, uh, they start throwing mud at each other. And we're getting to a place where we're extending a pandemic beyond where it should have been. And we could have controlled this long time ago. Honestly, that's what I feel. Uh, I may be completely wrong on that. Hey, man, sure. uh, they, just, they controlled just, it in China. So, hey, man, if you want to just uh, look in parallel, uh, I, don't, I don't know if many of you remember the, the weapon of mass destruction that um, you know, we, we wanted to find in Iraq and how that uh, started, yeah. and, you know, a lot of, lot of us knew that, you know, 
um, there were no, uh, you know, WMD, or at least there was no any credible, you know, um, uh, um, you know, uh, research from anyone, uh, right? But then again, what US did is that they went to, you know, there was a big woo-ha, they convinced UK, and also they, they were lobbying or, you know, asking the US intelligence, GCHQ uh, at that time, there was a big uh, documentary on Netflix around that, which is to lobby all the UN members to vote uh, to attack on Iraq. And look, the thing with this kind of thing, if you lo- draw parallel, there were no WMD, but there were millions dead, right? I think best thing to, you know, look back in history in that context, these powers can lobby and also influence in order to sway what the narrative, right? The best thing to move on, find out, you know, how and how we can avoid. Exactly. Best thing to just move on, right? I, I think that's probably the best solution for the world, as yeah. a, you know, things that we learned from the past. Okay. Yeah, Heyman, if you, if you remember uh, Dr. Fauci's connection uh, with uh, whole genome function labs got disclosed quite recently, and mm-hmm. CIA, with all its resources, it's it's quite unimaginable that they didn't know that Dr. Fauci is connected with Gain of Function Labs. But they were so scared, the political, uh, because, because yeah. of stature at that point, that they didn't disclose it. So you can see that four-month lag there itself. Okay. I just want to be clear. This is not about Gain of... To me, this is not yeah, about Gain not, of Function research. This but it's is just about... Yeah, yeah keeping it, everything out there, because I think during a pandemic, like when we're in an emergency, the last thing we want, like, for instance, Dunnish, you know, it is like when a patient comes into the emergency room, right? And we're trying to quickly do triage. If the patient or someone is not around to tell us what exactly happened, like we're going crazy. We're looking around, like taking blood everywhere, right? But imagine if we found out from this, uh, someone who was witnessing it or someone who was with them, oh, they took this medication and that's what happened, right? And then we like immediately, we could act faster. And that's what I feel like in this situation. We have not gotten all the information. And that's what delayed everything. Okay. That's the nail on the head right there, Heyman, is that whoever did the research knew they, they performed a matrix and knew what the potential outcomes could be. And that would have gave us some insight. And I'll shut up. Okay. We're going to move on. So the next big headline is the um, poly network um, hack, essentially. Uh, well, kind of a hack where somebody found a vulnerability and then took out uh, $611 million with a, a whole bunch of different cryptos. And this is an ongoing drama. Apparently, uh, the headline now from Decrypt says the, the Poly Network team has announced that all the stolen Ethereum assets amounting to over $600 million worth of cryptocurrencies has been returned. So kudos to the hacker uh, for returning that. And all... The remaining user assets, meaning because that was a lot of people's money, by the way, that got removed temporarily, has been returned. All the remaining user assets on Ethereum, except for the frozen USDT, has been transferred to the multisig wallet controlled by Mr. White Hat, who's the hacker, uh, and the Poly Network team. The The team tweeted, and the Poly Network team also clarified that the repayment process has not yet been completed but that they hope to continue communicating with the hacker to ensure the safe recovery of user assets and to convey accurate information to the public prior to sending the funds back to the poly network team the attacker was offered a five hundred thousand dollar bounty the message which was attached to an ethereum transaction sent by the poly network team which read we plan to offer you a five hundred thousand dollar bug bounty after you complete uh, the refund fully just seven minutes later the attacker responded the poly network team did offer a bounty but i have never responded to them instead i will send all of their money back what was the poly network hack and then it goes into what it was and he uh well there's some interesting little points here where it says um 
two days ago, the Poly Network team created a, a multi-sig address and notified the hacker that they could return said funds to the address. The hacker started doing so later, saying the hack was just for fun. I'm not very interested in the money. I know it hurts when people are attacked, and but they shouldn't then, but shouldn't they learn something from those attacks, the hacker said. And his point, there was a little interview where he said, basically, he found the vulnerability. He realized somebody... If anyone else found the vulnerability, they might be a bad actor and take the money and run. So he took the money and held it, knowing with the full plan of returning it. And he worried about who he should notify, because if he notified the wrong person, um, they might not tell the the right people at the company and um, them themselves steal the uh, exploit the vulnerability. So he waited until the right people came along and made, made sure they were the right people and said, yeah, I'm more than happy to return it. And I want you to learn from this mistake and hopefully it doesn't happen again. And they've given him a $500,000 reward for finding the vulnerability or what we call a bug bounty in the in the, in the the hacker community. And, and um, as Amay kind of predicted, and, um, and here we are. Tyler, how many days did it take? Question, total? Tyler. Three, three or four, yeah. Yeah, was it in five days? Tyler, yes. You rob you robbed the bank and then you discover the next day your whole face is in uh, across the mainstream media, they know who you are. They don't know who and he then is. The next day you decide no for example They don't know who he is. They still don't know who he is. I'm say for example. Okay. But does does that does that make you not a criminal? In your example? Um yeah. y- yes, you you're a criminal because you robbed a bank. You yeah. the money. Yes. You still you're still a criminal, right? Uh, yes, but uh, Tyler, Tyler, I think one thing you're not saying is that he returned only about three hundred million. Uh, no. he kept the Ethereum. No, it's no, six hundred million. But he still, returned, okay. So, uh, I think initially the uh, the so a few days ago he returned three hundred million. Yeah, takes which time he kept to return. The Ethereum. He's no, but now he's returned all of it. This is a up to the date headline. Yeah, so he returned all the Dogecoin and all of that stuff, and he kept. So, like, I think what no, Cheryl is alluding returned, to is that you know when he realized he's returned everything. Yeah, but look, I mean, if somebody really want to, you know, inform someone the vulnerability, I mean, there are other ways to do it, right? You don't need to go and steal the bank and say, you know what, hey, I want to show you that, you know, there, there are other ways to do it. Just walk in and knock and say, I want to see the CEO because there's a, you know, somebody just trying to steal one billion out of your bank. You, I think you the CEO will want to have a chat. The thing is, you don't know if it's the CEO. That's his point. So he's being Robin Hodel. Okay, so his identity is not disclosed? Correct. So is there a way to find out? N- not really. Not unless... okay, so Tyler, yes. So what is the transparency in... you are talking about? Tyler? Yes. In the co- in the context of this space when working with DeFi projects and in this context, and you're a technologist, so you know this, you get this. Bug bounties have been around forever in app development. They just haven't had a really monetary value attached to them, right? Most of the time it's part of someone's job, which really sucks because you could find some really good bugs and no one pays you squat except it's inside uh, your salary, right? The beauty of this whole space is that now there's the opportunity for those white hat hackers to actually be able to make a living. And that is also why the companies tend to keep them very close and are aware that they're out there. And that actually helps them in future to have less of those vulnerabilities happen. I have a dear friend of mine who hacked into NASA at 19 years old. They did not arrest his ass. He went to work for the military and they still watch his house. He's good friends with them and he helped him out immensely. And now he's got his bald head 
no pun intended, on the cover of a rocks book for cybersecurity. So I think there's a, a really a come to Jesus conversation that has to be had from a tech perspective, that this is the expertise of the technologists. And this is what um, Janet Yellen is yelling about, or the people are yelling about super coders and getting all their you know, panties in a bunch about super coders. I'm like, these guys and girls are talented. Why are we beating them up for their talent? That's what I wanna know. Why are we considering them criminals when they're just really good at their jobs? Okay, next headline is that the head of Twitter India, <laughs> a very interesting role indeed. If you <laughs> join us regularly here at Tech News Around the World, you know what an interesting, that's probably the world's most interesting job title whipping boy uh, yeah. <laughs> um the head of twitter india wow i don't envy that individual is moving to the u.s as senior director revenue strategy and operations amid continued tensions between twitter and the indian government and that might violate the um agreement uh, or the requirement for that role if i understand it correctly Vinay or somebody else from india can can... Uh, no, they're, they're actually appointing a new MD. Okay. Uh, it's essentially um, uh, the government's request is sort of a change of guard of all the guys who were a bit, uh, how do they put it, pissanti with the government. They said, can you move these guys out and put fresh faces that we can work with on a clean slate, please? Okay. So that's what it is. Okay. And he, and he sends the rest back to instill fear in the others that are coming. <laughs> So, uh, moving to okay. So the next headline is: um, Is there any Airbnb did their quarterly report? We got that. A look at the efforts to shape federal rules disclosing cyber attacks. Oh, this is an interesting one. That Wall, sorry, uh, uh, what we call K Street, or basically um, Washington D.C., is looking at new policies to shape new federal rules. Uh, to force companies to disclose when they've been hacked. And now a group representing Google and Amazon and all the big tech companies obviously wants to be involved in shaping that legislation because the government wants tech companies to reveal when they've been hacked, basically any hack, anytime and immediately. And the tech companies want to only report incredibly important, serious hacks uh, days later so that they have a chance to fix them, you know, before the, if they figure out if they're actually a problem and understand more about them. And so they're asking for 72 hours to do an assessment of what's actually happening. Cause you, once you in the first 24 hours of being hacked, you, a lot of times you don't know what the fuck's going on. So what can we report exactly? We ourselves still don't know what's happened yet. So they're asking for 72 hours instead of 24. And they're asking to only have to report, actually consequential hacks that are actually useful to people to know about because they get hacked every fucking day and most of them are not important at all for people to know about so that's what's going on there so so, so tyler yes. part of that is actually uh, i don't know if you guys reported this in an earlier room which i missed you know accenture was hit with a 50 million dollar ransomware right yes. i don't know recently if people yeah, are aware of that. 48 hours ago yeah, yeah. Yeah, but no, actually, now the latest information that's coming out is Accenture knew about the ransomware attack in late July mm. and did not disclose it for two weeks, mm -hmm. uh, putting uh, customers, clients, and others at risk. So this is a, is a reaction to that. Like, you guys need to let us know immediately from a liability perspective, not two weeks or three weeks later. Okay. So I'll tweet that article out to you guys. Okay, so there's another interesting article 
about an algorithm called NARC-CARE, which is used by doctors to identify a patient's risk of misusing opioids and, and for deciding if a if a, a patient should be given opioids. So the doctor themselves isn't really sure should this patient get uh, prescribed opioids. So the doctor also uh, uses an app basically to figure out should they give opioids to this patient. And it turns out this this algorithm that makes this decision is giving away too many opioids basically that we've delegated the decision-making to an AI. It turns out this AI is giving out opioids more often than it should. And which There's an app for that. <laughs> so it's an interesting issue. I mean, basically, doctors are, are delegating their responsibility to AIs. And the AIs, in this case, are, need to be further optimized. And that's a, just a whole interesting thought about uh, and, and something that's going to continue. Johan? Can, can AI hold shares in these companies? <laughs> and they can can they be programmed by or hacked by the opioid companies in favor to make decisions in their favor? Wild ideas. I, this is a whole new. But uh, I thought that was the I thought that was the kind of the the case. I thought this was a Purdue Pharma. I, yeah, I yeah, know, yeah. Danish Purdue. Well, this is here. this is the point. Purdue Pharma, the maker of the opioids, was giving kickbacks to the doctors. So the doctors were prescribing way too many opioids because they get they're essentially financially incentivized to do so, and that's why there's an opioid epidemic, and that's why. Purdue Pharma is now in a whole bunch of legal hot water. And so maybe the idea of an AI is even better because now you remove the human. You can't financially incentivize an AI to make the prescription. So maybe it's better than an AI does this, except when the AI uh, can be hacked <laughs> directly by the Purdue Pharma, for example. So it's there. John, sorry, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, well, there, there's. There's even a there's even a more colorful backdrop to this that every doctor knows but hasn't really emphasized, and that is that, like every U.S. doctor, I had to take ten hours of training about how to give more opioids uh, because of uh, prescribing reluctance. You know, ten to fifteen years ago, um, so that it became a requirement for re licensure. Um, to take 10 hours of how to appropriately give more opioids so that people with, you know, terminal cancer and chronic pain um, wouldn't be deprived of painkillers because of the fear of addiction. And so there was this whole big campaign to get doctors to prescribe more opioids. And what do you know, 10 years later, we have an opioid epidemic. Mm. Um, so there was, you know, uh, a lot of... of uh, financial motivation on the part of a few um, that, but not the many. Um, so th this crisis was um, a consequence of some well-intended attempts to increase the management of suffering and overcome some reluctance to prescribe opioids. But like most like blunt campaigns, it overshot the mark um, and fueled by uh, some less than scrupulous uh, actors in both uh, the pharmaceutical industry and in the medical practice, but not a majority of the pharmaceutical engagements, not a majority of physicians, quite the contrary. It was a minority of each, but they led to this horrific problem. 
Okay. I actually had a pain week at U of T, University of Toronto. We had a week for pain week. It includes dentists, dental students, medical students, pharmacy, and everything else. And all it was was we didn't know this until just recently. It was sponsored by Pharma. And we were told that, oh, there's no restriction on the ceiling of uh, opioid use. And these are the instructions we were given. And we, we ceremoniously burned our books that we were given from that time. Uh, but it was scary looking back at it. Okay. Did the pharmaceutical companies build the AI? That's what I'm curious about. Yeah, <laughs> I don't know. They had spies uh, working there. Um, a new startup called Table Vibes. Customer surveys help restaurants reduce their reliance on delivery apps. And the question is, how are they doing that? Food delivery apps offer convenience for customers, but a host of headaches for restaurants, like commissions as high as 40%, and very few tools to build customer loyalty. Uh, Table Vibe, based in Singapore, wants to help restaurants reduce their reliance on third-party delivery apps, which, by the way, could totally undercut their whole business and make a, a copy of them in a, you know, computerized cloud kitchen tomorrow if they really wanted to. And so, yeah, these restaurants are very nervous about these delivery apps because the delivery apps could start, They the delivery app decides, you know, where the food actually comes from. They have the power, they have the customer and the money. They get the money from the customer. It's their decision where they spend that money, basically. So uh, Table Vibe wants to help restaurants reduce their reliance on third-party delivery apps and help them get more direct orders and returning customers Table Vibe founding team of two Googlers. And uh, the idea for Table Vibe came, tab, table vibe came uh, when they visited a restaurant in Singapore that uses paper feedback forms. We thought if they use paper feedback form, it actually creates a lot less hassle, like entering all the data into an Excel spreadsheet. How's the restaurant owner going to get actionable feedback based on data in an Excel spreadsheet? The team became began working on the first version of Table Vibe with some Google Forms for dine-in customers, etc. Then the pandemic hit. Restaurants can customize surveys. About 80% use Table Vibe's templates, which are quick to fill out since most... Also, what they do is they put a QR code on the box so the restaurant makes the food. They put the food in the box. The box has a QR code. Next to the QR code, it says, please rate us and get a 5% discount on your next order. You scan the QR code. It opens a form. You've, you enter in information that they happily pay $5, uh, give you a $5 credit that you may never use for that information, that data that you just gave them. And now the restaurant has data about the buyer, which previously they didn't have. And they can build a direct relationship with their customers. And now they know who ordered the food because previously they didn't. Because the, or the, the, the customer placed the order with DoorDash. DoorDash doesn't tell the restaurant who ordered the food. But now with this, now the restaurant knows who ordered the food. And now they can build a database of their actual customers who are ordering their food from DoorDash or from the delivery companies. Very clever. <laughs> How could it be, though? Like, uh, DoorDash knows about this eventually, right? Well, they yes and no. The, the sticker could be inside the box, on the inside of the box. When you open the box with your food, then you see the sticker on the inside of the box with the QR code that says, 
uh, rate us and get a $5 discount. You scan the QR code. It's a survey. That data goes to the restaurant. The restaurant knows who you are. It's got your name, your phone number, your email address, and how much you liked their food and what you didn't like and whatever. And now they've got control of the customers back. And now you're starting to see a battle for control of the customer between the restaurant and the delivery uh, and the ordering apps. And if you're a restaurant, you kind of go back to the pizza pizza shop model where you have your own delivery um, team and you can recover that 30, 40% margin. Yeah. So this company table vibe, interesting that it's based in Singapore. Why wouldn't they do this in the U S where Jay, you must be familiar with this. You're in Singapore. Yeah. Or you were, and he works at grab the biggest delivery company. Earth to Jay. Hey, hey Jay. Uh, yeah, I'm actually unfamiliar with it. This is new. <laughs> okay, well, we have our new next new startup we're going to start here. Who wants to start? Because, a... because Jay only used Grab. He can only use Grab, nothing else but Grab. Yeah, but... Hey, Tyler. Yes. One thing, though, with all these companies, right? But... You know how we are also working on clean tech and everything else. Do we, but, should but... we actually start questioning how much environmental sustainability and all this stuff they're using? Because they're using a lot of packaging and stickers and all this stuff. I'm curious, like, should we be gauging them on this? I don't know, but we are doing that at Grab right now, actually, Heyman. So we are oh, cool. um, actually have green. Um, uh, what do you call it? We are looking into green and pretty much trying to limit the amount of green. Uh, well, not limit. Oh, sorry. Grab is green. Yeah, Grab, Grab is green. Yeah, well, aside from that, right? We, we do plants have, behind him too. We we do have um, how do you say uh, initiatives that are trying to go that route and i obviously can't speak about them but we are going right. that way <laughs> but the, thanks yeah that's awesome but the, and and in india swiggy uh, the largest one is all zomato also have initiatives to reduce plastic and uh pushing restaurants and giving special uh pr- pr- access to restaurants that have that are more green the, the most immediate thing every single one of us can do to dramatically reduce our carbon footprint is to switch to a plant-based diet. The, the, the greenhouse effects of, uh, of animal um, uh, production of, of meat um, has been established as one of the most significant contributions to greenhouse gases. So it, it is that simple for each of us to make a big impact by just switching to a, a plant-based diet. Okay. Even if it's one day a week, right? Totally. Anything in that direction makes yeah. a big impact. Here we go. Yeah, John's pretty spot on. Next article from Cheryl via Reuters. Severe droughts are drying up rivers and reservoirs vital for the production of zero emission hydropower in several countries around the globe and in some cases leading governments to rely more heavily on fossil fuels. Thus, it can, it's an endless uh, downward spiral. It, once you run out of water... You don't have hydroelectric power. You got to use uh, your old uh, fire up the old coal plant because <laughs> you've got a drought because of climate crisis. Fun little downward spiral. Prime Minister Modi um, becoming India uh, says that unicorns, the tech unicorns, the startup unicorns in India, they're up to 22 in this year. Truly un- unprecedented. Uh, They say unicorns becoming India's identity globally. Prime Minister Modi hails burgeoning startup ecosystem. 
several unicorns becoming identity of India globally. Prime Minister Modi hails uh, the burgeoning startup ecosystem, according to the official release by the Prime Minister's office. The theme now. I find this very interesting personally because I work with a lot of different governments uh, around their startup initiatives. And in some countries, the national government and the prime minister takes an interest in it and others they don't. In the case of Sweden, our prime minister has never met with any of the startups ever, including Spotify, including Minecraft, including Candy Crush, including all of them. And his office is a walk, a fucking 300 meters from their offices. You're kidding me. No. No way. Yeah. That's unreal. Unbelievable. Why? That's crazy. Why? And then here's Prime Minister Modi, a country of more than a billion people. And he's saying that I don't know how much more praise you can give your startup community than to say it's the the India's identity globally are the unicorns. But Tyler, we learned from you that Swedish are very humble. So is that just it's how just, they do it? It's um, it, no, I, I've been. I, there was a front page cover story of me in the biggest political magazine in in Scandinavia, um, and I the, the the photo is me, and in the headline in Swedish says he won't answer my fucking emails, and it's about me and to the prime minister <laughs> okay. in, inviting him to my event to speak on stage to open the event, which every tech event normally does that. You allow the prime minister of the, you to welcome the delegation of, you know, 7,000 people, you know, from all over the world come in for this event. Do you want to welcome them? He doesn't even respond to the emails. So nor, but nor is he ever, and it's not just this current prime minister, the last prime minister as well, notoriously never, no one ever met, never spoke, never did Jack diddly squat bubkiss with our startup ecosystem. In Sweden. So, Do you want to welcome them to your own country? I mean, it's just so it's hard. bizarre. And then, by the way, I mean, all my other friends who do all the other big tech events globally, they have their prime ministers on stage wearing a hoodie, a startup hoodie with the lo- event logo. And they're jumping up and down like, you know, couldn't be happier and prouder of, you know, their startup ecosystem. So but there, there, there's a critical political motive behind it in India. One is unemployment. Uh we have something like 20 million graduates hitting the workforce every year. Pandemic has created huge amount of job loss. And the one sector of the economy that's growing and hiring people like crazy is the startup ecosystem. So it's in the vested interest it's, of the government. Yeah, dude, to push you, we, yeah. we, the start, you know who's doing all the hiring in Sweden? We, I mean, the, start, the startups are hiring so many people, there's no one left to hire. Well, there's a few million people we can send from India yeah. any day. By the way, you, and you, you, you send your ministers to my event to say that. <laughs> yes, one of my biggest, one that. of my biggest sponsors is India, and they send the the minister of whatever his title was, because you have a, an endless amount of them, and they come. They've done it three years in a row. Two thousand six, sixteen, seventeen, uh, seventeen, eighteen, and nineteen, and then we didn't do twenty for obvious reasons. So they, the, the, each year the delegation gets twice the size. Last year it was about 600 folks from India flew over. They had their own Air India flight. They showed up, came, stood on stage, said, come to India. By the way, we have a special Indian tech tour one month from now in October because my event's in September. Please come as our guests, as entrepreneurs and investors. We will take you from Mumbai to Delhi to Bangalore to meet everybody. And and help you set up in 
India. We are, and by the way, one of Sweden's, you know, uh, we have about 18, 19 unicorns now ourselves. One of them is True Color. Their whole market is India. And they, they made a unicorn out of just doing India. And so they, they get up on stage and they're like, yep, going into India was the best thing we ever did. Because Sweden's got, you know, doesn't have anybody to, you know, you can't make a unicorn if you're only serving, you know, the 9 million Swedes. So, um, yeah, so uh, uh, people, they do a but flight Tyler, down there and the whole thing. You're, you're politically connected. I mean, even at the lower levels, like staff or key staff or whatever, someone has been giving you a hint as to why the PM doesn't respond. Yes, to your they did. There has to be a reason. Oh, yeah, there is a reason. And I know the reason. The, the answer is because this is really interesting. In two, uh, 1999, when the original tech bubble was happening in America, with Pets.com and Webvan, and you know, it eventually all crashed, right? In the 2000.com crash. Everyone knows this part of the story? The, yep. the, there was only one other country that was doing the same startup innovation booming, and it was Sweden in Stockholm. And the politicians at that time in 99 got all excited and attached themselves to the startups in 99 and claimed victory. Our party's so much better. Look what happened. This whole big tech innovation boom. You Look, who's, look who made it happen. Don't forget next election who made this happen. And then they also crashed at the same time that the Americans crashed. And those politicians oh are forever embarrassed about having attached themselves to the startups. And so both parties have a huge, deep, permanently ingrained, you know, warning sign, red lights flashing, do not attach to these startups. They, they could disappear no tomorrow. One, no wonder they, they ask an American like Tyler to go and uh, be the scapegoat. And you make Sweden the Silicon Valley of Europe. No, I, Cheryl, that is the, the most unswedish thing you can ever imagine is what you just did. You, you would, yeah, and that's why we love it. Tyler. You would be sent to the airport and brother. never spoken to ever again. <laughs> <laughs> but you would be sung on like heavy metal music. Anyway. And hey, hey, Tyler, <laughs> Tyler. Let's see how Johan is going to say. Where's Johan? Hey, Tyler. I was going to say, according uh, your India statement, is very much accurate. Um, what he's saying with if you guys have a startup and you come to India, they will help you out here and open up all types of doors. They have a big startup push. I mean, I'm actually here in Delhi right now in India. And by the way, uh, Tyler, if you'd like, we were talking about uh, AI, XR, and uh, augmented reality. And so I pinged my good friend, uh, um, uh, Steve Wiley. He's actually the CEO of Vega. They actually created the Immaculate. The Immaculate, he's in the crowd here. He, he's got basically that Nat, Netflix um, AI tech. I mean, sorry, Netflix uh, augmented reality tech. He, he made it. It actually exists. And he's, he's in the crowd. It's Steve Wiley. I don't know if you wanted to... Uh, bring him up on mm. on stage he's, he's got some pretty awesome stuff one, one of the my uh assistants of my events Renjan, is indian but lives in stockholm and he's telling me to invite cecilia uh oldna uh who works with our friend robin from the sweden india business forum and robin helps organize that uh indian tech tour so uh, cecilia if you're in the audience and you want to jump on stage you're welcome to <clears throat> anyway so um. Yeah, Mo, I I just think it's cool that Modi's recognizing the startups. By the way, so does uh, Emmanuel Macron is incredibly hyped up on the startup ecosystem in France as he as he should be, and he's doing you know that's seeing good benefits from that. Anyway, um, 
The next article here is also about India. Twitter, uh, somebody named Rahul Gandhi Twitter says that Twitter is biased by shutting down my account. It is interfering with India's political process. According to Rahul Gandhi, Congress leader Rahul Gandhi has said that Twitter is interfering with India's political process by shutting down his account. I didn't realize that Twitter was so fundamental to India's government, would be their response. Who, us? We're just a little chat app. Um, then the next headline is um, from Science Daily, from our friend Radesha. It says, toward next generation brain computer interface systems, a new kind of neural interface system that coordinates the activity of hundreds of tiny brain sensors could one day connect our brains to computers. Good times. Just tweeting that out to the Tech News Twitter account so that you can see that yourself at TNATW. Then Evan shared this one from Wired. Oh, we talked about the a drug addiction risk algorithm and its grim toll on the chronic pain sufferers using AIs. And we also talked about NVIDIA's um, April keynote of their virtual CEO, uh, where they digitized their CEO uh, for their conference, and nobody realized it until they just uh, shared it today. And then Faraz sent this one in from Bloomberg, that there's a massive China port shutdown, uh, raises fears of closures worldwide, a COVID outbreak that has partially shut down one of the world's busiest container ports, is heightening concerns that a, the rapid spread of the Delta variant could lead to kind of a global supply chain shutdown. If And this is, by the way, we should all be hoping that China does contain Delta. It's not looking so promising at the moment. They are sealing people into their homes. There's videos released today that they're doing as they did last time where they weld people's doors shut with them inside. And maybe that's not a bad idea because if China... Uh, has a similar problem that uh, the rest of Asia is having, which we didn't have before with Delta. Um, they might have to shut down a lot of their main ports, and that could be uh, a huge global headache. You called it. And then um, actually, two of the topics we talked about earlier is John, kind of hear you. Because of under treatment. Pardon me? Try again, John. Your audio is not. You, you're in the matrix, John. <laughs> he's on the four. He's on the four hundred five, Tyler. <laughs> John, you're in the matrix. You That's the voiceover you. IP rather than the twisted copper pair. We'll we'll do a headline and come back to you, John. The next one is Elon Musk calls uh, uh, Bosch's chip supply problematic. The Tesla CEO, um, Elon Musk, griped that two of the world's biggest auto chip suppliers are inhibiting the electric car maker's production. So Tesla's delaying its uh, Cybertruck. And um, here we are, more chip shortages, more companies getting impacted by uh, slowdowns. Amazon drops draconian policy on making games after hours. We covered that. China's education crackdown pushes costly tutors underground. So indeed, China is saying that the tutoring system, which was prohibiting people from having kids because it's too expensive to have kids or to educate them, and that's why they're not having kids. And so China's latest campaign to rein in its $100 billion out-of-school education sector was meant to level the playing field for all. Instead, the crackdown is forcing 
these costly tutors underground into a black market, you know, like drug dealers. Hey, you want some education for your kid here? Meet me in this back alley back here. <laughs> you, what do you want? You want some history? You want some math? What do you want? You want a little, uh, you want a little Did science? you say math or math? Meth or math? Because if you say math, I got I the best math. I got, math. I got some. I, I got some high grade algebra over here. I got some. You want some trigonometry? Oh, I got some trigonometry. What you want, boy? I got I it want, all right here. You want a little want physics? A you want the real calculus. good shit? I, want that. I got some high grade physics over here. You you want the good shit? You come back to Poppy over here. We got the good shit. Different differential equations, man. Oh yeah. Oh. I've got to put a medical disclaimer. We are joking on stage, please, folks. I got oh, a full geez, kilogram of linear algebra right over here. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. I'll take it. <laughs> Black market math. Um, <laughs> Supreme Court lets. You can imagine. You can imagine like people meeting up like in a car, <laughs> three in three in the morning. Hey, hey, hey! Are you are you the tutor? <laughs> yeah, I'm the tutor. <laughs> Faces. You you want me to hook you up with my Twitter essay? Listen, is that a Casio? Oh my God! Faces, faces of math. Yeah. you know they have the faces of math where you see the teeth oh my, over time. This would be the best Saturday Night Live skit ever. Like math tutors, like sneaking, you know, moving the geek edition. Yes. Oh, I'm gonna hook you up with my tutor. So, um. U.S. Supreme Court eases New York evictions moratorium. A divided U.S. Supreme Court eased New York's temporary ban on evictions of renters who are experiencing financial hardships because of COVID-19. So they're the Supreme Court. This is the biggest court in America. This is the final law of the land. The Supreme Court let some New York eviction proceedings resume. People are now going to get evicted where they end up. We're not sure uh, that we'll think about that later. <laughs> the 2021 Disney accelerator sheds light on Disney's metaverse ambitions. Indeed, that's a kind of a good, interesting point that uh, Evan raises in this tweet, which is that big corporate companies have digital accelerators where they bring in startups and you can look at those startups and give you an indication of where their head is at with regard to the future uh, things like the metaverse. And so Disney's accelerator be interesting to see what startups they have. I bet they have startups that are playing with VR and AR. Ab no doubt. Absolutely. They do. And that could give you a look at their metaverse ambitions. And you can see the article I just sent out to the tech news Twitter account uh, from Evan all about that. And then Se um, <clears throat> Sequoia is one of the world's leading tech investors. Sequoia's this Bloomberg. Don't don't get me started again, Bloomberg. Uh, the venture firm Sequoia has exposure to the online education sectors that regulators have choked and investors worry its other holdings could be next. No, not really. Um, so as they say, Sequoia remains upbeat due to quarter exposure on healthcare and life sciences because they're in healthcare and they're in life sciences and those haven't been impacted. And so Bloomberg is asking, is this next? So the headline reads, Sequoia's China portfolio hits speed bump after tech crackdown on ed tech. They remain upbeat due to quarter exposure on uh, healthcare and life sciences. But could this be next? And the answer is no. I mean, two, 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 yeah, two totally different 
unrelated industries Correct. that are absolutely going back gangbusters. I mean, it's kind of a weird one. I don't it's know just because these, Bloomberg like, are just idiots companies. and they don't know what's going yeah, on. It's, and it's the point thing. if they if they knew that if they knew the child you know the low childbirth rate um, thesis, they'd say that medtech would probably be aiming to have pregnancies finish in six months instead of nine. Correct. You know. <laughs> Correct. They fundamentally don't understand what's happening on a really absolutely simple issue that everyone in this room who joins us every day knows very well and they don't and they keep embarrassing themselves with these headlines and they and it's i'm calling them out because you're a multi-billion dollar news agency we are a ragtag crew of a subway sandwich <laughs> eating you know we're chilling that shit we can't even get subway sandwich to sponsor our goddamn newsroom and you're getting making <laughs> billions of dollars yeah, they need to invest in some ad tech to upgrade themselves. Holy shit, Bloomberg. Why don't you hand that money over here and we can help you out, Bloomberg. Jesus Christ, stop embarrassing yourself. You look ridiculous. So the next one is from the Wall Street Journal from our friend Ken. It says, COVID-19 live updates the HHS, the Department of Health and Human Services, to require vaccines for thousands of workers and the, the Department of Health and Human Services will require more than 25,000 of its healthcare workers to be vaccinated against coronavirus um, and return to uh, Facebook delays. So you get the idea. Now, I love this one. Berlin throws vaccine raves to help revive dormant club scene because the clubs are shut down because of COVID. And now the DJ has got to find out something to do because, my God, does Berlin have all the DJs? And Berlin uh, is having vaccination parties where the the DJs are uh, they're creating like these outdoor clubs where you can come get vaccinated. And that's the treat is you get, you know, to see all the DJs playing, you know, outside and come get tested at this vaccination event. Uh, Get testing done at these locations where the DJs are performing. And it's quite clever, really. It is because, like the, the the Germans absolutely love their trance. Fuck yeah, their dance like D- yeah, they're all nuts. <laughs> they're like, why not? DJs play for people getting COVID shots as the techno capital seeks to restart its nightlife. Love it. I I fucking love Berlin. It is absolutely the city I identify with probably more than any other. Just personally, um. Yeah, many of the best uh, nights of my life in that city. And hope it gets well soon and hope we can get back to dancing our asses off until sunrise uh, very soon. So the next one is from Bloomberg. You know, those geniuses over there. Uh, Plant-based meat proteins get $22 billion biotech firms backing. That's great. Novo, Novo Zymes. The world's largest industrial biotechnology company is betting on more growth in the plant-based meat markets. Okay, good. Dort- so, Tyler, yes. Bloomberg has a club here called Bloomberg Live, and I looked at its members. Most of them are editors and uh, journalists from Bloomberg. Mm-hmm. So maybe we need to start pinging oh, them we gotta all start, in there. No, we got to start camping in their room. Get my hand <laughs> raised up in that room. I got a question. Why are you so Bloomberg clueless Live. about what's happening on China? <laughs> Yeah, they're regularly on Twitter space, Tyler. Okay. So I really joined two of them. Hold on. Isn't that a position of the corporate, though? Because they actually were very careful about not stepping on any Chinese issues, even when Bloomberg was running for election, right? 
like they have a huge uh, terminal sales in China yeah, yeah. that they would not want to mess that up. Oh, that's why they, they look, yeah, but why then they should be the first ones to come out and be like, exactly. hey, chill out. It's exactly. you know, it's about the birth rate. Anyway, DoorDash falls amid a steep cost to sustain pandemic growth. Not really. Bloom it says Bloomberg. Oh my god, Bloomberg. Holy shit. You guys are ridiculous. They're saying DoorDash is falling amid steep costs to sustain pan pandemic growth. No, not at all. And there's an actual chart I'm tweeting out right now in your own article of uh, their growth quarter over quarter. They're growing still every quarter now. Q2 2021, where everything's open, customers' appetite for takeout only keeps growing despite reopenings. So, Bloomberg, I have a question. Why does your graph... In your article, the graph has a title. The graph's title is Another Record Quarter. Customers' appetite for takeout only keeps growing despite reopenings. And then your headline that in, of the article that includes the graph says, DoorDash is falling am uh, amid steep costs uh, to sustain pandemic growth. Those are contra contradictory, directly contradictory. Yeah, a new phenomenon, simultaneous pump and dump. Yes, we're the 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 quarter growth, uh, another record quarter, and steep uh, and DoorDash falls during record quarter, is what you're saying. DoorDash falls on another record quarter. What the fuck is wrong with you, Bloomberg? Get your shit together, guys. Come on, you're just stupid at this point. I I understand you have to make clickbait titles. Keep your business going, your dying dinosaur of a business going. But come on, you're embarrassing it yourself. Okay. No, I'm going to start calling them out very regularly. It's just, it's ridiculous. <laughs> Airbnb tumbles after projecting uh, decline in bookings on virus. That's true. And this is a Bloomberg article. And this one you more or less got right. Shares fell 5% in extended trading after the company forecast a decline in quarterly bookings compared with pre-pandemic levels. Yeah, that's kind of obvious. Okay, you got that one right, Bloomberg. Let's see how you do on the next one. Jesus Christ. So there, Evan just shared this one about a company called Pyka, P-Y-K-A. I'm tweeting it out now. And it shows off its new electric passenger plane, the P3. Quite beautiful little device. V and Nikkei Japan, who never fucks anything up like you guys do, Bloomberg. So Nikkei Japan's got this headline, which is correct, <laughs> like it always is. Vietnam delivery startup called Loship strives for rare U.S. IPO. Investor demand has been driving Southeast Asian companies to record valuations. See, is that so hard, Bloomberg? Follow Nikkei Japan. They do it right every time. Vietnam delivery startup, booming, going for U.S. IPO. Southeast Asian companies, record valuations. It's really simple, Bloomberg. They're not, nothing's falling apart. The company's not dying. They're US IPOing. Southeast Asia's booming. Delivery companies are booming, just like DoorDash. Yet your headline says DoorDash is falling despite another record quarter. What the fuck is wrong with you, Bloomberg? Get your shit together. Next headline. They, they need a math tutor. I mean, a math tutor. <laughs> Wireless earbuds charge themselves. Uh, and thank you to Gabby for this one. Your earbuds that you keep in your pockets, they actually require very little power. And so these are a device that could be solar powered. 
because solar power doesn't generate a whole lot of power, but your earbuds, when you take it out of your desk, they don't need that much power, honestly, then you can charge them via solar power and put a little solar power screen on the device is very clever. So wireless earbuds that charge themselves, you can see them, I just tweeted them out. Um, as more and more ports are removed from our small devices, it seems that we may have one of two options available for using peripherals, either buy a dongle or turn to self-charging devices and solar power devices, and you get the idea. Again, Nikkei Asia uh, says, the fact that two Chinese telecoms are poised for mainland Chinese listings uh, on, on their stock exchanges only about three months after being booted off the U.S. stock markets, hints at the urgency of Beijing's efforts to uh, encourage such U-turns. Exactly. You got it right, Nikkei Asia, as you always do, that China's forcing their companies to delist from the American stock exchanges, which, by the way, the Americans are very happy to comply with that. They're, and they're telling them the same. Get the fuck off our markets because every time you come over here, you have these bullshit accounting records, which that coffee company that competes with Starbucks, holy shit, what a shit show that was. You've just got complete, utter lying in your accounting, which we don't appreciate on our U.S. markets. Get the fuck out of our markets. So we are losing no sleep at all about your Chinese shit show companies going and listing in on your Beijing stock exchange. Get good riddance. So that yeah, that's what's happening, and they <laughs> that, that's just is what's happening. We we you don't see us shedding any tears about the Chinese companies leaving our stock exchange. Go back to China. Don't cry for me. Or Holy China. shit! You're you're, you're, account, you're accounting. They just utterly lie in their in their accounting. It's ridiculous, and that's why we we are forcing them to comply with our accounting standards. If you want to list on our exchanges. And they cry about it. And we have a good re we there's a good reason we're in insisting that you do it because the companies that ha we have listed have sh utterly shit show accounting records and systems. And so that that's why we have to f enforce kind of, you know, um, reg you know, standardized accounting principles to list on, you know, U.S. market exchanges. And now that they, they, they can't bring themselves to comply. And so probably better they stay at home and, you know, ruin their own stock markets. Anyway, Evan found this one about wearable psychedelics could soon give users maximum control over their psychedelic trips. Yeah, wearable psychedelics could soon give. Yeah, scientists are working on pharmaceutical device to help give people the best possible experiences on LSD and mushrooms and DMT and etc. And that's a really wild idea. And I guess it they play music that enhances your uh, your psychedelic voyage, for lack of a better word. It says, picture this. You enter a pharmacy, hand over your doctor's prescription, and the pharmacist hands you back a small, lightweight analog device about the size of a pager. It is, the pharmacist explains, the equivalent of an insulin pump. After having it calibrated according to your recommended dosage, you go home, lift your shirt, attach the pump to your stomach, and at whatever frequency and intensity best suits your needs, receive a regular and recurrent dose of dimethyltryptamine, DMT, the so-called spirit molecule, or LSD, or mescaline, or other act active ingredients in peyote. There is no sudden onset of hallucinogenic effects, no nausea or vomiting or strung out anxiety, nothing other than a vaunted therapeutic effects of which these kinds of psychedelic compounds are becoming increasingly revered. This is the future that Greg Peterson and Jeffrey Becker, founders of Bexon Bio 
Medical are working towards a not too distant future. All things going to plan. We are actively developing our psychedelic formulations and would like to have them in humans in 2022. Peterson told Vice News. And we we've got some work to do beforehand, but that would be our target. And Tyler, this is like a standard uh, system that we already have for pain yeah. management, like patient control analgesia. So it's just basically using another medication. Yes. Uh, for, but for those people, those people who like to go on trips and take like magic mushrooms, etc. I don't know. They, they, at least whenever I was growing up, those guys were more in it for the you know, the thrill of actually picking the mushrooms and thinking, you know, this could be really wild versus. I don't know. Maybe, maybe not that they're forty-five. This is just dosing. This. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This yeah. is basically exactly. to make sure that it's accurate dosing. As, as, as somebody with a little first-hand experience in this, I'll explain what's going on here. Especially, which is the psilocybin has potential benefits in the form of reducing uh, anxiety, causing a little more mental clarity. Uh, ketamine is having interesting effects in labs of reducing depression etc creating de- creating depression uh, re- relieving depression ptsd and is kind of what are some of the beneficial side effects of this if done at appropriate dosage the problem is most people are using psilocybin and lsd and, and dmt at what we call heroic doses which cause psychedelic experiences like myself where i had conversations with trees so uh, you don't necessarily want to be doing that. So that's why this device gives you a micro dose, which helps you with your anxiety or your PTSD or your depression, as these chemicals are proving to do in labs. So that's what this is really all about. Can I? Can I just? Yeah, go ahead. Have some some MJVR. Sure, bra. Yeah, so the, MJ, Mary, you know, Mary Jane under VR experience. Okay, I'm just throwing it out there. <laughs> so the Taliban claim uh, uh, they've captured Kandahar, Afghan's second largest city. Very concerning indeed. Kabul's the, the leading city. And there's interviews today that I saw on the ground uh, in Kabul where they're interviewing people. Everyone's thinking of leaving. Not everybody. A lot of people are thinking of leaving. It could, they're already estimating 10 million refugees. It could go as high as 20 million refugees. And just as a reminder, you know, as one million Syrian refugees put Europe up against uh, its back up against the wall politically, gave rise to a lot of the right wing uh, parties throughout Europe, caused a whole lot of issues um, uh, to deal with. And that was one million people leaving Syria. And now we're talking maybe 20 million. So a 20 X increase of what happened with the Syrian. The Europeans know exactly what I'm talking about. So, uh, especially folks uh, around the Nordics, uh, particularly Swedes and Germans as well, it's it, it's a, turned into a powder keg issue. Over one million refugees. Now we're talking twenty million. Where are they going to go? They're already. It's, it's wild. Um, let's hope for the best. The fall of Afghanistan's second largest city would be a crushing blow for the government. Yeah, and would have huge implications uh, for Europe, as they well know. And they just banned the burqa in the, in the EU Commission. Perhaps not a coincidence, is it, after all? Um, so, we'll see. These uh, Gabby sent in a really cool video that I'm retweeting right now to the Twitter account that you can see of a self-driving bus in Zhengzhou, China. 
And it's the identical bus that we've had in Stockholm for, I don't know, six years. So um, in Shista, near the Ericsson headquarters, anyone in Sweden knows exactly what I'm talking about. Finland also has these buses. And now people in China are surprised to see self-driving buses and they're taking videos and they shared it. And you can see it from the Tech News Twitter account. Coming to a city near you soon. Sequoia leads a $13 million investment in a new company called Alto, an online marketplace that lets homeowners sell directly to buyers. If you've ever sold a house, you know what the pain is going through the process of listing, showing, and negotiating the sale of your home. It's so much of a pain uh, that uh, a startup is now letting buyers and sellers connect directly. It's as easy as booking an Airbnb, as buying a home through Alto. And makes me want... 13 million, did you say, Tyler? Mm, mm, mm. What's the headline say? $13 million investment, yes. Yeah. So I had a question just about, like, that was Sequoia putting money in. Like, you know, back to your story of, like, like the 40 who, who kind of did the virtual two fingers up to those others who were, like, charging the startups. It, do, do you have a view of, like, the, the whole, like, maybe a bit of a sidebar question, but, like, the, the good investors... Uh, are there like a good cohort of investors who are really like in it for the founders in it for who are kind of like um, what would you say more like of the spirit of the heart of what you and Francine were talking about earlier versus the kind of more dark side or like I've got no view on it but can you speak into that a little bit? You're talking about right now today? VCs and tech tech VCs which ones are the most founder friendly? Yeah. Okay. Um well, I mean, Founders Fund didn't. In, they they chose that name to try and project the image that they're very founder friendly, and and that's a really interesting story because it, Sean Parker was involved in in Founders Fund. Sean was essentially kicked out of Plaxo. He claims by Sequoia, who used to have a history of replacing founders when the company got to a certain stage, and certain. VC, there's basically to oversimplify two types of VCs: those who um, went to Harvard Business School and got a, you know, uh, their bean counters, to, you know, to, <laughs> pejoratively, and then you've got op, what we call operator VCs, which are former uh, startup founders themselves. And those are two very, very different types of VCs: ones who had built startups themselves and you know now want to invest in the next future founders, and then Harvard Business School um bean counters so who you know are just mathematical you know um business mind types and who who look at the numbers and the metrics and the charts and whatever and the 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 operators the founder types kind of ignore that stuff because they know they ran a startup that those charts and those numbers don't mean anything it's about who do you know at the company let's make the deal happen and it's relationships and it's it's these unquantifiable things you know so you know it depends Ultimately, it depends on who the person, the investor who you feel most connected with and who you really feel believes in you. And, um, you know, there's a real art to the matchmaking. We It's often compared to a marriage and it's even harder to break up than a marriage legally. So <laughs> and what about Tiger Global? Tiger Global is putting them all on check. Yes. T- right? Tiger's raising an, 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 tons of money and throwing it out. Uh, they would some of their critics would accuse them of throwing spaghetti against the wall and seeing what sticks. They're just investing in everything. And because tech is booming. And as long as you're not investing in stupid startups, just decent ones, you 
you you're still going to win because tech as a whole ecosystem is growing. And if you invest in all of it, it's kind of like a big mutual fund of tech. <laughs> you just bet on everything because tech itself is booming. So you're bound to catch a, a bunch of unicorns that way. So, um, you know, they all have. But they're also more they're more hands off, too. Just yes. you, you brought up a really good way to d- describe the different segments right. of, of the investors. Right. So they're very hands off. Some are. And they don't do all the dual the diligence. I mean, just Tiger versus some, traditional. Some focus on due diligence. Some they they regardless of which of the two types of investors they are, operator or bean counters. Again, those are kind of pejorative terms, but the the point is they look at the startup usually in three different lights. Uh, some of them focus on the founders, and that's what they're focusing on. And they don't really care what your startup is or even what your idea is. They just care about you because they know that there's a very good chance you're going to have to pivot. And during that pivot, you don't want to fall in love with the idea. We're, if it's a good enough founder, the, uh, the majority of startups end up not their end product is not what they started off with. And so they don't fall in love with your idea that you're pitching them. They're more concerned about you as the founder. So that's their, uh, those are founder-based investors. And then you have market-based investors, which is they invest in startups that are addressing a particular market, like delivery, e-commerce delivery, or buy now, pay later. That market is booming, 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 booming. Even a shitty founder is likely to be successful if they're in the right market. And that's their way that they invest. So they're not that worried about the founder. They're worried about the market. Make sense? So those are two very different approaches. And then there's, yeah, yeah, there, yeah. there's um, kind of a, a third category. But you see where, so you could even optimize and say, you know, you recognize you're more of a, uh, you're in the right market or you're not. Are you are you trying to do something that's not a hot market? Don't go pitch the investors that focus on market. Go to the ones that focus on founders. And maybe, you know, uh, you know if you want to focus on a found, uh, an investor who focuses on, um, that is an operator that themselves used to be a, a founder or you want to go to one that has more of a business school mentality. So it all depends. And then this, the whole, the whole, uh, concept of smart money yeah and, you know there, there, there's smart money you're you're an investor that has the connections because i like the way you describe the uh one of the segments in terms of you know uh, in, in any case the smart money like what what is smart right especially when you have a whole new class of angel investors who maybe they just they they, 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 they went to facebook they're angel investors they've never worked at startups but they think because they worked at a fame company that they know technology and these things so it's the, the sophistication of smart money is an important thing to 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 engage your investor um with as well like what what, what do you bring to the table so there's something oh whoa, whoa, where did that go there there they are image nick okay so there's something weird about this alto company that sequoia just invested in because um this is a clone of my friend's startup um riku out of helsinki uh, does what he calls block, which is exactly this. And ironically, the main tech uh, university in the center of Silicon Valley, in the center of Helsinki, the main tech university is Alto University, spelled A A L T O, as every Finn knows. It's the prestigious uh, university in Helsinki, where all the geeks come out of Alto University. And he. Went to, no doubt went to Alto. His name's Riku, and he's doing Block. 
and he's been doing it for a few years. He's doing quite well with it. And then this startup comes out, which is a clone of Block, and the name of the company is Alto, also spelled the same as the university in Helsinki, where, where he's from, where Block was born out of, spelled A-A-L-T-O. That's, that's just kind of weird. It's one thing to cl- yeah. clone another company, but it's another thing to name your company after the university that that company came out of. The founder Finnish? No. Mm. He looks Russian. But are they running a university, though? So it doesn't conflict, right? Well, he, he's building this startup in Silicon Valley. Block is based out of the Nordics at the moment. So just oh. what a weird... The spelling even is the same. A double A L T O. Tell me that's a coincidence. Intentionally. Yeah. Why would you name your company after the university that your the company you copied came out of? I don't get it. That's weird. Anyway. So um, the next headline is from Joe Williams. Uh, China cranks up carbon intensive projects as climate crisis grows, according to Reuters. China, as climate research shows, China is cranking up carbon intensive projects. (laughs) China announced scores of new carbon intensive coal and steel projects in the first half of 2021 research showed on Friday, just days after the key UN report from the IPCC. Good times. And a related article, perhaps, uh, Chris Saka, who, who, by the way, to answer your question, Dave, Chris Saka is easily one of my favorite investors in all of tech. Who this headline's about. Why Why is that? I'll tell you why. Uh, and let me read the headline. Uh, he just raised another $800 million to keep unfucking the planet is the headline. And those are his words on his own Twitter account. And so TechCrunch took his tweet and used it as their headline. <laughs> he says, let's unfuck the planet. And if you know Chris, that makes all the sense in the world he, that he would say that. Um, he's just not uh, precious. He's not, uh, there's, you know, he doesn't like pomp and circumstance and he just is a real likes to keep it real. And we had Chris at an event that Jason and I hosted called the open angel forum. And we, and it was a private, uh, again, a hand, we, we limited it to the, you know, the best 12 investors in whatever city and five startups and they pitch and it was in a backyard and a barbecue and, they pitch, you know, we paused the barbecue to start the pitches uh, and this founder pitched and he in the middle of his pitch, he reaches for his beer to kind of, you know, he needed to wet his whistle and ha- had a swig of his beer in the middle of his pitch. And Chris says, hang on, did you just take a sip of your beer in the middle of your pitch? And the guy's like, yeah. And he's all, he says, I'm in. <laughs> I'm investing. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and that's Chris. And here's another uh, favorite Chris story. Which And then he Chris says, we need to make this a tradition that people need to take a swig in the middle of their pitches just to keep everybody, you know, humble, to, you know, feet on the ground. Don't get too hoity-toity and teetotaling. You know, we, we don't need to, why don't, you know, we need to be real. And he intentionally wears a cowboy shirt uh, all the time, everywhere, because he doesn't want, you know, people to take tech investing too seriously, you know, with the, like these... uh you know, he's kind of the opposite of the Patagonia vest kind of vibe. So, well, not right. I mean, once in a while he might wear Patagonia. But the, the my, my point is, when I had a startup, he was one of the people I pitched, one of the very few that I really uh, wanted to pitch. And I said, hey, Chris, I got this startup. It's in customer service. It's a, you know, customer feedback system. 
He says, ah, stop right there. Say no more. I said, why? He goes, because I just invested in something similar. And I don't want you to pitch me this idea. And then I just invested in something similar. And then you think I heard your idea and then, you know, told it to some other startup and that I just funded. And so just to avoid that potential, uh, you know, we like each other. We don't want to create the potential for a misunderstanding. So please don't pitch me something about customer feedback, you know, stuff like that. And I, I have all the respect in the world for that. That that because uh, that's brilliant. Yeah, it, that's it's, brilliant. it is totally brilliant. So if he's invested in something and I he I didn't know he had invested in it. Right. And, you know, because he a lot of time investors invest in things and it's not known for three months later until it's announced. And he and so it wasn't a disclosed investment he had made already. He's like, I had just done an investment in a customer feedback thing. First of all, it's not good if you're in, well, he's one of those. Some investors take the position that you don't invest in competitors simultaneously that are in the same field because, you know, it gets a little messy. So if he yeah. might not be interested in me anyways, because he takes that position. He doesn't want to have multiple customer feedback startups that he's investing in. Some do. Some feel like I want to invest in every buy now, pay later company. So, but, um, so, you know, he said, you know, don't stop your pitch right now, mid sentence, you know, out of the first sentence, because, um, you know, I, I would hate for you to think I took this idea and told another startup about it. And, uh, so. Yeah. He seems like a really real guy. Oh, yeah. I mean, he seems like the type of guy who, uh, if I told him my idea for a startup, he wouldn't go and start one. Correct. You know, the same. Correct. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, but that. But if it's an adjacent uh, market, is okay. If it's a competitor, of course. But unless you hear it, you wouldn't know if it's a competitor or not. This is Lawless speaking. Well, when you say customer feedback, that's all he needed. That was enough for him to realize it's too similar. Retail customer feedback. And the entrepreneur deserves to know what your thoughts are on that because investors don't sign any kinds of NDAs for obvious reasons, Correct. too. And there are, I've, I've known angel investors who are software developers gone, angel investors who are hunting for ideas to go do. So, I mean, there's, you get, just like anything on, just like it's any group of humans, you get literally every different kind of person. So it's good to have that conversation before you really disclose so much. Okay, next headline is the, the $8 billion EV company you've probably never heard of. Um but it's making cars. It's focusing on commercial. It isn't making cars. Actually, it is if you look in on their website. But um, this whoever wrote the BBC, BBC, you fucked up. <laughs> um, you say it isn't making cars. It's focused on commercial vehicles, vans, buses, and taxis. You're wrong. On their own website, you'll see they are making cars, BBC. Try clicking on the website of the startup you're talking about next time. And... Um, it's called Arrival, and they make incredibly sexy EVs, including cars and buses and vans for commercial purposes, but also for uh, the future of um, you know, non-commercial. TikTok hopes to help teenagers work, rest, and sleep. And this is about them stopping notifications after 9 p.m. Don't get me started on that whole rant. Algeria forest fires, at least 65 people killed as fires spread across Algeria, uh, which I guess they are not used to having big fires. Uh, people in California know to fucking run when we have fires now. Um, 
after after many years of fires, uh, people learn to just run from your home <laughs> if it's on fire. Don't hang around and get burnt to death. Uh, but I can understand if it's your first time having a fire season, as everyone's going to now start having. Take a tip from your friends in California. Run. Get in the car and drive far and fast away as fast as you can. Uh, that's just how you do it when the fires start happening in your area. Don't stick around. Don't hope for the best. Run, run, run away as fast as you can. Come back later and hope that you and hope you have insurance, um, so that you don't have sixty-five people dying during fires. Um, again, sorry if uh, n- nobody gave you the tip, uh, but next time, next year, when these happen again, because they will happen again, remember get in the car and run. Don't stick around. So, and even for a house, I watched a program on TV that it says it takes only two to three minutes for the whole house, for the entire house to burn. So you better get out of there soon. New York Times says U.S. is sending 3,000 troops back to Afghanistan to help everyone evacuate from the U.S. embassy, which they have a tremendously huge embassy at uh in Afghanistan. So they're sending in 3,000 Marines to evacuate the embassy. And that means they're coming for Kabul and they've taken over. So the... I think British soldiers have gone in as well, Tyler. I think I read in the BBC earlier. Mm. Let's check the article. It's a mess down there right now. um, The New York Times reporting... Uh, companies are starting to make big bets on how we will all behave after the pandemic ends, reading the Zoom tea leaves. And um, yeah, as geeks have always done, welcome New York Times uh, to Tech News Around the World. Try jumping in here. We'll we'll let you know what's going on. Uh, You don't need to read the tea leaves. You need to hang out in TNATW. The next one is also from the New York Times, where it says... Uh, there's a 35-person team of technologists and designers and producers and strategists working closely with the New York Times newsroom involving technologists that are either already in uh, with technologies that are either already in use for other mediums such as gaming or are expected to be soon. And this research and development team at the New York Times explores how emerging technologies can be applied in the service of journalism. Well, check out uh, this little app called uh, Clubhouse, maybe. Yeah, it kind of works for us. 35 people? I mean, I could have a startup like going gangbusters with 35. It's crazy. 35 folks helping the New York Times. And then, what was that one? Cheryl found one from Wired about Planet E-Girl, where gaming and beauty meet. And then our friend Victoria, the VR (laughs) guru, is the grandmother of E-Girls from back in 2003. And she sent in a photo uh, proving as such, which Wired is now covering. Very cool. And then uh, Bloomberg says that the CIA weighs creating a special China unit in bid to outspy Beijing. (laughs) Due to the never-ending spying of Beijing, the CIA is thinking of making a very special unit to spy on China just to (laughs) keep keep up... um, Uh, So that it's not a one-way affair. Move would build staff funding for expanded China focus. Director Burns of the CIA has pledged intensifying focus and urgency. (laughs) Tit for tat, it's called. So the U.S. clears third COVID. Yes. 
just just going back, I, I missed that for a second. The Victoria, grandmother of what? E-girls? E-girls. E-girls. It's just, just go see the Twitter. Just check the tweet. I just swatted on Twitter. Okay. All right. Here And then here's one that you just sent in, Faraz, that the U.S. clears third COVID shot for immunocompromised patients. U.S. Regular, regulators cleared giving a third COVID-19 vaccine dose to people with weakened immune systems in an effort to improve protection for those with um, immu- that are immunocompromised. And this is actually quite important. Um, there's a maybe John or Donish or, or others might know what percentage of people are immunocompromised. Basically, anyone who's ever had a transplant uh, has to take medication that reduces their immune system so that their immune system doesn't attack their transplanted organs. And um, it's a very real thing. Yes, yeah, it's, it's between it's between depending upon how you define it. It's between four and six percent. So six percent have some kind of auto uh, immunity with associated immunosuppressive drugs or organ transplant or anything that affects, you know, inherited about 6% of the total population. Um, but I think the numbers they're citing, I haven't read the, the CDC announcement yet today. I will. Um, but the numbers they were citing previously is 4%. So that's a, a more uh, extreme form of immunosuppression, but between four and 6% of, of the world population has some sort of immunocompromise. Okay. Look, uh, Cheryl just shared one that uh, looks like, uh, according to Nikkei Asia, which has yet to get anything wrong, English out in Shanghai schools. Elementary through high school students here returning to class next month will find a more relaxed climate with fewer required exams this uh, in the semester. Um, and they will be required to memorize key quotes from President Uncle Xi Jinping, but they will no longer have an English exam. And China's mixes ideology into education reform drive. Chinese authorities look to lighten the load of children while keeping them loyal to the Communist Party. So less English, more Uncle Xi quotes. Yeah, that's not lighten the I'm sorry. That's okay. I'm just saying that, see, I told you that he wants to keep his people within the country. He doesn't want them to go out anymore. Is there a little red book involved? <laughs> oh, yeah. Oh, oh Evan. Xi Jinping taught. No, no. Evan obviously understands a little bit of Chinese revolution history. Um, the red book? Yes. Well, for those of us who, who studied Chinese uh, history, uh, we, we won't go into that deep dive. That's a whole other room. Um <laughs> But uh, a little hat tip to Ivan for a very clever uh, pun indeed. So the, the next headline is that TSMC is looking at Germany as a possible location for its first European chip plant, where they are diversifying out of tai- Taipei, Taiwan, into Japan. That was announced about three weeks ago, and now they're looking at Germany. And thank you to I, I, I think it's small Germany is trying to attract them to Germany to probably continue their supply to the automotive industry I'm sure it, there's incentive to do that the headline says TSMC is quote unquote seriously evaluating the feasibility of building a chip plant in Germany which would be its first in Europe the, uh, said on, they said on Monday it's considering building its first European semiconductor plant in Germany as a global race to onshore chip production heats up and then also from Nikkei, well, no, we did that one already. China blames U.S. for COVID. And 
U.S. clears third shot for immunocompromised, and we covered that, and Sequoia backs Alto. We got that, and that does it, everybody, just past top of the hour. Thank you for another headline-packed tech news around the world. Fun, as always, and we will meet again tomorrow. Hope you can join. No, yeah, we will. In this time zone tomorrow. Yay. Yeah, but Yay. tomorrow, thank you, uh, like, it's, it's thank you guys. Time. There's fintech news around the world. Uh, that's right. So, so we'll see you tomorrow. Happy Friday, guys. Happy Friday. Have a great weekend. Thanks, everyone. Yeah. See you guys. Likewise. Bye bye. Bye. Thank bye. you. Have a good weekend. Bye, everyone.